Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we're going to be talking about a carnival diet. Yes, we're going to explore why eating a diet exclusively or at least predominantly made of animal-based nutrition has been building incredible momentum over the last few years. To help us do this, we've got the incredible nutritional therapist, author, and carnivore diet advocate, Judy Cho. You'll hear a lot more about her in just a moment, but trust me, her style, story, and biological insight is worth the two-hour listening commitment of this episode. If you're new to these concepts around meat-based nutrition, be prepared for your nutritional paradigm to be challenged, if not completely shattered by this discussion. In this episode, we unpack Judy's 12-year commitment to a plant-based way of eating and the mental health and disordered eating issues she grappled with throughout. Just thinking she was broken and weak and not knowing there was something deeper more rooted in nutritional deficiency. We dig into these issues, the therapy and the medication approaches that she was offered, and all the while understanding that actually her diet was failing her and her doctors couldn't see this. We talk about Judy's leap into the unknown and scary, dropping the plants and going completely meat-based, i.e. a carnivore diet. And why after three years, she is such a strong advocate for this way of eating. Being completely healed of her mental health and disordered eating battles, Judy helps us understand why scientifically she is now thriving. We define what she was eating before and what exactly is involved in her carnivore diet today. We explore diabetes, gut issues, sugar addiction, hormonal and neurotransmitter issues, brain energy dysfunction, and why a carnival diet can be a powerful tool to heal chronic deficiency and inflammation. We touch on ancestral and traditional nutritional wisdom, the problems with modern plants and our consumption patterns of them, and the role of meat and plants in the human diet. And of course, in this two plus hour discussion, tons more. Whatever your existing belief structure and diet is, hopefully this discussion is some food for thought. As always, you can check out the full show notes by clicking the link within the description of this episode. But moreover, this episode makes up a comprehensive and diverse collection of great interviews where we challenge the modern nutritional norms with this idea that more meat and less plants is likely to be a healthier outcome for humans. If after listening to Judy, you want to dig deeper, then check out all the other episodes in this series of nutrient-dense optimal nutrition, which will be listed within the shows. And if this discussion resonates with you, then please help others find our show by leaving a five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging or sharing this adaptation episode on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, then do check out our Be Your Best self-optimization journey an online self-improvement program like no other, letting you into the human code and helping you realize your full potential and to be your best. You can find more details and podcast listener discounts in the episode notes. 
Okay, without further delay, let's dive straight into this crazy, weird world, or so it seems, of choosing to only eat animal-based foods with the brilliant Judy Cho. Okay, guys, today we have a former business consultant turned nutritional therapy practitioner, nutritional author, and prolific producer of evidence-based nutritional content online joining us. This intelligent woman values family, bio-individual health, honest science, and a return to clean, ancestrally consistent nutritional choices. She's comfortable with complexity, but delivers compelling simplicity. The evidence, the science, observations, and her own personal experience has landed her on a meat-based diet, with her Instagram and book focusing on what she calls a carnivore diet. Yes, we have the well-respected and highly productive Judy Cho. Welcome, Judy. Wow, thank you so much for such a wonderful introduction. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's a true pleasure. I have been following your work and your fantastic content online for quite a while. So I'm really looking forward to having our chat. Yeah, thank you. So tell me how 2021 is treating you so far. It's only a few days in, 12, 14 days in. Has it been all right? Yes. Yes, it's been good. I mean, you know, unfortunately, so much of the world is, you know, still going through all of the I guess, pandemic. And so there's not much of a difference, I guess, than 2020, but overall it's good. I'm hopeful for the future. Um, 2021 hopefully will bring more change in a positive way, but yeah, it's looking good. How about yourself? Much of the same. Yeah. Uh, We started the beginning of the year with a a few resolutions of sort to kind of pull away from some of the raw emotion that 2020 brought. Um, especially when you see the world slightly differently to the mainstream narrative, is it, it, it has been a uncomfortable space, 2020, should I say, and uh, kind of made some commitments to not fall back into that pattern. But 14 days in, we're, we're living in one of the most authoritarian countries at the moment, as it regard in regards to the COVID response in the UK. They're really right. going for it, <laughs> and it's um, it's hellish, especially if you don't agree with the science that they're using to support the decisions they're making. So it is challenging. But one thing is interesting. <laughs> year after year, um, the the noise around Veganuary has been amplified. Uh, this idea of like plant-based diets and try it through the, the month of January, you know, skip meat altogether. It has been amplifying and amplifying and, you know, almost reaching a point of, uh, you know, no return. At, you know, this was likely a path that will continue to strengthen in this country. But you know what? <laughs> this COVID obsession has completely stolen its funder this year. I mean, I'm not hearing any news about Veganuary, really. I think our um, supermarkets are, you know, pushing some of their products a little bit more, putting a couple of adverts out, but no one seems to be interested. There seems to be bigger fish, fish to fry at the moment. I mean, how how is Veganuary playing out in the US this year? Do you even experience yeah. that in the US? You know what? It's interesting. I actually never thought about that this year, but you're right. I haven't heard about it as much as the other years. And maybe it is because, you know, the, I guess the vaccine is rolling out. And so everyone's more focused on that. Like, when am I going to get it? Or when, when's my turn? That type of mainstream narrative. 
And I don't hear, I guess, the diet as much, unfortunately, um, even from, um, I guess, meat-based focus. But um, I think in general with plant-based, I know there was a much bigger push, you know, for these uh, Beyond Meats last year. But yeah. you're right. I don't hear it as much as, and I, 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 I'm guessing it's because of the, especially in the United States, the, uh, you know, new president coming in and. And stealing I, I, all the every, focus, right? Yeah, and all the focus around the vaccine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I think um, that's exactly what it is. You know, exercise and diet um, was central to a lot of people before we put something else in the middle. <laughs> and yeah. there's there's yeah. there's a lot more to focus on right now, uh, for good or bad. Um, but on top of that, I, as I say, generally uh, you've you've got this kind of ever louder and more dominant push to minimise meat and to double down on plant based, real or processed foods. And I thought it would serve our audience to kind of have a counter argument, you know, told through an extreme opposite, which is this carnivore diet for humans, not not for dogs or wolves, but for us, for humans. So if you're up for that, I'd like us to kind of unpick this notion that the, the layperson has, which will likely sound like this diet is an ancient, unevolved, and oppressive, animalistic behavior that sounds both redundant uninformed and lacking essential nutrition? Because I, I think most people would have some or if not all of those responses to an idea of only eating meat. So if you're up for it, help me unpack some of these beliefs around diet, especially around this kind of plant versus animal dichotomy that we're increasingly seeing. Is that something you're you're willing to try and give a go for, for this call? Of course, of course. Um, so we're, let's talk a little bit about the anti-nutrients, I guess, from the beginning with plants, you know, versus animals. So, yes. Well, let me take a step back. Minute, yeah. so, I was just going to say, why don't we? Why don't we get started before we get into the meat of it? Excuse the pun. Why don't we get started <laughs> understanding a little bit more about you, Judy? So let's let's understand your education first of all, so people can level set on you know what you what you learned at school, what you learned through university, uh, what your formal career is. Uh, your former sure. diet prior to finding this diet, what your health was prior to that, and just generally the experiences that are have supported you to evolve into a nutritional therapy practitioner. Because I know this hasn't been something you've been doing your whole life. So can we kind of right. walk through that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California in the 80s. Um, and, you know, I it's a very plant-based friendly area. Um, and I was always, um, I guess, quote unquote, normal weight. Then I went to UC Berkeley for, and I, you know, studied psychology and communications. I actually was pre-med for two years. And then I flipped over, went to psychology and I even studied abroad, um, for a year. And, uh, during that time I gained a little bit of weight, um, not too much, but you know, they call it here, the freshman 15. And mm -hmm. so it's about 15 pounds. And after college, you know, my friends were getting into a diet called the master cleanse, which is basically a lemon detox. It's a little bit of lemon water, cayenne pepper, and I think maple syrup. And so I did that for seven to 10 days and that's all I had. And in his book, the doctor basically talks about how if you eat meats, they basically putrefy in your system. It takes the longest to go through your body and it's just rancidifying. And it just made sense to me 
at that point. And so I, and you know, I never told this part of my story, but I also um, had a dog at that time and he died right around that time. And so I just, and he got murdered by a different dog. So I saw that happen. And so I just kind of got disgusted with meat. And so I was like, okay, this is perfect. I'm just going to stop eating meat. And then that kind of experiment lasted for about 12 years. So yes, I lost the weight. Um, Sure. I felt good for a few months, but slowly I noticed my mental health was declining, but I never, ever attributed it to my diet. So, you know, I went to Berkeley, which is very, very plant-based friendly. And I went and I lived in California my whole life. And so, you know, when I started uh, even traveling for work, so I became a uh, management. So even though I majored in psychology, I ended up uh, becoming a business consultant. So I started traveling the world. I worked in Munich. I worked in London. I worked in Korea. I worked in Japan. And so I worked in all these places, met all these people, but it was always the notion that, Hey, you're plant-based. You are very healthy. You look healthy. You're a normal weight, but behind closed doors, I started struggling with my weight and I just wanted to keep, I guess, that identity of being plant-based. And so, you know, after work, I would start binging and I would, um, eat junky plant-based foods with a lot. So a lot more processed, a lot more of the seed oil fats. And I guess that's how I would kind of satiate my body with, um, um, higher fat. I was eating mostly, I guess, whole grains, um, lots of carbs. Um, I was trying to limit the actual added sugar, but in general, I, I don't think I was probably doing a good job of that, but in general, I was eating a relatively clean plant-based diet. So, lots of spinach salads, lots of nuts, lots of, um, occasional dairy, but in general it wasn't enough fat. And so at night I would end up again, binging or using other disordered eating behaviors. And I never knew again that it was because of my diet. I just thought something was inherently wrong with me. And then fast forward some time, I basically maintained that kind of lifestyle ups and downs tremendously with mood, emotions, never diagnosed with anything. I do remember probably early in my twenties, I went to a therapist once and she said, I think you have an eating disorder. And I was like, Oh, I could fix it. I, you know, studied psychology. I can take care of this. And so just kind of went about my life and I finally got married and I had my first son and I was nursing him. I was still using some disordered eating behaviors and I was nursing him around the clock. I wasn't eating. I was still plant-based this whole time. And what ended up happening was I think six months in, I had mastitis. So I had to take antibiotics. And this was the first time I've ever taken antibiotics in that whole time. And then I ended up basically losing my memory. I don't know what happened. Um, I, the, my family finally took me to the hospital because I was acting a little funny. And so in the hospital, and the thing is, I don't remember any of this. Um, I have snippets of memory, like if it was a movie or, you know, a past memory. And during that time, the doctors basically said she has severe postpartum depression. They put me on antipsychotics, antidepressants, and they said she needs to probably you know, work on therapy and maybe she can go to the eating disorder facility, but they weren't really sure what it was. I mean, postpartum depression normally happens a few weeks after you have birth. It doesn't happen six months later. Mm -hmm. They just kind of assumed it was that. Um, 
But we never, ever figured out what it was. No one ever told me to change diet, but they told me, you know what, since you use behaviors, you probably should get some eating disorder therapy. So, um, my son was left in Los Angeles. I went back to Texas and I got therapy. So as a new mom, you sort of always fear that you'll be a bad parent. And for me, it kind of came true because when I was in that hospital, I was no longer breastfeeding. Um, so I was forced to stop because I was taking the antipsychotics. And since I don't remember things, every morning I would ask for my son and they would tell me over and over that you stop nursing. So I was going through the emotions every Jeez. single day I heard that. And again, never was there a question of maybe she should eat meat, maybe she should eat some fat, none of that. And so while that was heartbreaking, I was able to heal a lot going into the therapy. Um, I took 10 hours of therapy there and, you know, they talk about cognitive behavioral therapy of, okay, so, you know, why, why are you using food as a scapegoat? And all of those things were really, really beneficial. It gets to help you to figure out yourself, your needs and those types of things. But in terms of diet, it was always about moderation. There was no sense of, you know, whether it's organic or clean foods, everything was processed there. There was barely any fresh foods. Uh, we microwave pizzas. Uh, we just, they maybe would give you, um, a small salad, uh, but you know, you can say you want to be plant-based and they'll honor that. So no meats, no dairies. Um, you could even be vegan, but when it came to saying you were low carb or I don't eat added sugar or I don't eat processed bread, their answer was no, unless you have like celiacs, uh, you have to eat carbs because that is an eating disorder. And so everyone in there would be forced to eat some of their trigger foods. And that would be, if you can overcome eating these trigger foods, then you are basically healed. So sometimes my trigger foods were like ice cream or, uh, cupcakes or some of those foods. And if I could sit there and not, you know, squirm or feel these needs of, Oh no, um, I need to compensate for eating these foods. Um, then I would be finally healed from eating disorder. So clearly something was wrong. And after getting out of there, um, you know, a lot of my behaviors did heal, but it would kind of come back. So whether, and I really think it was a nutrient deficiency, but again, not knowing that I thought something was wrong with me, like, why am I just not strong enough? Why am I not just, you know, um, why can't I just keep going without using behaviors? Eventually I found keto. And the reason is I had my second son and I was deathly afraid that what happened with my first would happen again. And so this time I just started looking at nutrition. I think I found a blog post about someone mentioning how my life was when I gave up sugar for um, two weeks. And, you know, that intrigued me and I read it and I, that's how I found the keto diet. Essentially I tried it. And again, it was really healing. Um, I think adding all, a lot of olive oil and coconut oils during that time was really helpful. But again, I was just plant-based. So maybe keto would have worked for me if I added meat, but I never did. Um, and so again, I would be good for a while. And then a few months in, I would end up, you know, I think it was the sweeteners. Um, I would end up eating real sugar and I would end up falling again. And so I started seeing, you know, noise about the carnivore diet and I decided to try it um, almost three years ago now or three years ago. And ever since I started eating meat, my life has changed completely. So the cravings are not there, especially if I'm eating sufficient amounts of fat. 
And in general, the reason I why I came to all of these diets was not necessarily my weight, but it was my mental health. And my and what I can tell you is I have never had a bout of depression in the last three years. Sure, I have anxiety. I have moments of up and down. But I used to have days where I wouldn't even want to get out of bed. It would I would commit to myself at night. Okay, Judy, you are going to just go run an errand. You're going to be able to go to the mailbox and pick up your mail. And I couldn't even do things like that in the, in, in the mornings, I would struggle so much from trying to get out of bed. And now I never have that. Right. So if the 12 years that I struggled with my mental health, if I knew that just eating meat would actually help the majority of that, I would have changed that in a heartbeat. And never once did I question my narrative that being plant-based can actually Mm. not be as healthy. Um, And so as I was reading about carnivore and learning more about keto, I was just realizing, wow, I was so wrong. And the narrative, the mainstream narrative of eating plant-based or, you know, reducing red meat because it causes heart disease, all of these things are so wrong. And I was just getting more and more angry. And so I decided to go to nutritional therapy school, um, more really for me to further my education because I became passionate about it. And the more I learned, the more I was furious. And I just was, you know what? Um, I blame no longer me, but I blame a lot of the, you know, the food guidelines of why I ate the way I did, why the eating disorder facilities have to feed us the way they did is because they follow the government, the USDA's food guidelines, which are really toxic for our health. And so when I went to nutritional therapy school, I started using my experience in consulting with the graphics and uh, being able to be concise with uh, graphics and explaining myself um, now in terms of nutrition. And then I used a lot of the psychology, right, from my schooling, from my therapy that I personally went through, and then my own journey to basically share with other parents, families, kids that, hey, if you're plant-based or you're not eating meat, you're actually probably doing a disservice and especially with your mental health. And so I've now, um, you know, my mission has been to give back. Um, You know, oftentimes this type of work is much harder. I mean, I'm going against mainstream narrative and it becomes harder than if I was staying a consultant and making money that way. Mm -hmm. But this has become my life mission. I mean, we are so fed the wrong information of what it means to be healthy. And now I'm just going to debunk a lot of that information so that no one ever has to go through what I did. I had so many moments of darkness. And I mean, it's it's just not a life worth living like that when there's such a freeing life that you can actually live. I love that. Thank you so much, Judy, for being transparent, vulnerable, and honest. There's, you know, there's something really powerful in understanding understanding your journey. And I, I wanted to just double click a little bit just to make sure we understand some of the nuance. So you spoke about being plant-based. Um, can you describe that? Is that, was that like, was that a diet that changed throughout those 12 years? I know you spoke about the keto part, the back end of it, but um, what is plant-based to you? What was plant-based to you back then? What things were you not eating? Let's put it that way. Sure. So I, in the 12 years, I never had beef, chicken, pork, any meats other than occasional fish. So I was technically considered a 
pescatarian on yes pescatarian on most days but some days i was just a a vegetarian okay and And so that meant butter egg milk cheese rarely so i was also scared of fat you know because hey uh fat makes you fat, right? That type of mentality. Um, and so I was scared of fat in a sense. Uh, so never, I I don't think I had a, a spoon of butter unless it was cooked in a food I ate at a restaurant, but no butter for the 12 years. I never bought a stick of butter. Um, I probably got some margarine, um, but I would eat a lot of, um, you know, big salads. So lots of spinach, lots of kale. I would, I used to eat a pound of spinach a day on average. So that's 16 ounces. And, you know, that's really for a family, um, but I would eat that by myself um, in a day. And that would at least be for one meal or, you know, for two meals. And then lots of like garbanzo beans or um, black beans or red beans. And um, and then it would be also quinoa and lentils. I mean, lots of the healthy foods. So it wasn't just that I was you know, not eating healthy foods, but I would also eat like sweet potatoes. Um, but I wasn't eating a lot of fat. So I will give that. So I didn't eat a ton of olive oil. I didn't eat a lot of the, so I didn't do that until I kind of found keto. So in general, if I had salad, I'd have like fat free ranch, or I would do sometimes like a, you know, a, a, a light honey mustard, mm-hmm. But in general, that was really the bulk of it. Or I would eat a lot of bread. So lots of grains, um, lots of these kind of like nine grain breads. Um, That's a lot of the stuff I would live off of. I would live off of corn. And so, yeah. Soy as well? Soy-based products? Yes, yes. Uh, So I would eat a lot of tofu, tempeh, all of that. Okay. And And uh, no, no, I, I you hadn't confirmed it. Did you have many eggs or cheese generally in the mix as well? Or was that avoided? So, yes. Yeah, so I did have dairy. Um, I had a little bit of cheese, but again, not too much because of the, um, you know, the fear of added fats. So if anything, there, if I would maybe sometimes add a little bit of shredded cheese to my salad, but never would I um, get like blocks of cheese. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of eggs, I would probably only eat the egg whites because again, the egg yolks. And of course I never knew that that was where all the nutrition was. So the, you know, because they also demonize egg yolks. So they're like, eat the whites, right? That's where a lot of the protein is. And so I ate the egg whites on occasion, but I would never eat the egg yolks because again, that had the most fat. That was what caused cholesterol. And the funny thing is every time I went for my physical every year, they would always say, and I would tell some of the doctors you know, I, I don't feel that well, like mentally, I don't feel that well. And they sit, would tell me the last doctor, I remember him specifically saying your cholesterol markers are absolutely beautiful and you shouldn't worry about your health. Like you're in perfect health. And I just remember thinking, wow, I'm not doing well mentally at all. I, it's just unfortunate that, you know, my blood work was so perfect in the standard care kind mm-hmm. of perspective that they really thought nothing was wrong with me. And even though I kind of brought it up, it was like, no, no, you just don't know how healthy you are. That was sort of the mantra that was told to me. And again, I was like, I guess something's wrong with me. Right. So Mm. yeah, it was unfortunate, but. And did you, you know, 12 years is a long time. And obviously you, you got out of university, you then got yourself into business consulting. I know that can be an incredibly demanding job. 
um, you know, just keeping one step ahead of the customer and doing presentations and trying to convince mm-hmm. them to, you know, get get more consulting days in there. And you know, the pressures of partners. You know, I've I've been there. I've seen that. I know it's I know it's it can be hell, especially if you're trying to move up the ranks and you know get some status in a company. Um, did you? Did you not ever think that some of your mood or emotions or mental health was in part just life? Or, or, or did you think, no, there's something deeper than just my circumstances? Yeah, no. I So I, you know, I thought it was me. So whenever um, I would end up using behaviors because, so initially the eating disorder, I thought it was, oh, well, because I want to be thin, this is why I'm doing this. This is what I thought. Never did I think, oh, because I'm not eating enough fat, my body's making me crave foods until I feel that satiation. So I would almost never feel satiated after eating salads, which is probably why I ate so much in terms of volume. Mm -hmm. And then I would drink just um, cups and cups of water. I drank so much green tea during that time. So you can imagine the oxalates, uh, which is an anti-nutrient in the spinach and in the green tea, but I was just, I was basically making my stomach really bloated to feel this stomach stretch to feel the fullness. But in those times, if I would end up binging or using um, any of the behaviors of restriction, I always thought it was me and that I couldn't deal with my boss that was demanding or my boss that was unfair. And so I would use it. um, It started becoming a way that I was just kind of managing life. Um, but my emotions were always everywhere. But now when I look back, I realize, yes, there are definitely stressors in consulting. Absolutely. I believe that most of my consulting colleagues, because I was in consulting for a very long time, some of them use some type of, um, I guess, a scapegoat or way to kind of deal afterward. But I wonder also, because I also died with them all the time, no matter where we were, And no one ate a keto diet or a carnivore-ish diet. Everyone was eating grains, right? So we used a corporate card. And if you think about it, everyone's eating all the bread that comes in the beginning of the meal. And then they eat their, um, I guess, the USDA guideline type of meals where there's a meat, there's a little bit of fat, but then there's a whole lot of grains and carbs. And then again, they'll have some dessert or they'll drink some alcohol. So maybe some of their moods were also affected by their diet, right? Um, All of them definitely had that. I would say now I have a lot of stress even now, right? I mean, I just came out with the book. I have two kids that are six and under, and we have a pandemic going around. My kids are at home. We've decided to homeschool them now. So if anything, I probably have more on my plate now than I ever did. But life still seems manageable. Sure, there are days that are extremely stressful. But I never think, oh my gosh, I'm just going to go binge off something. I don't think that anymore. My eating disorder is truly healed. It took a while to get here. And it took a while to just be fully free from sugar. Because I do believe sugar is a complete addictive substance. But it's a complete different. I, I feel that I am a complete different person than I was back then. And to give you an example... My husband, when I first told him I was carnivore or was going to try carnivore, he only knew me as a plant-based person. So he was in shock. So first of all, the kind of letting go of that labeling is a big deal. Mm. And so he was like, "Uh, I don't think a diet of just eating meat can be good for you. And mind you, his mom, 
passed away early from uh, type one complications and died of heart disease. So he's even more wary of the, I don't know if you should be eating all this red meat. And so, but you know, he was supportive regardless. So I tried it. And then, you know, six months in, he still felt the same way. He's like, I don't know if that's smart. Maybe you can add a little bit of kimchi, right? Cause we're Korean, or you can add a little bit of um, greens. It's not going to kill you. But one year in, he finally was like, I don't, there's something to it because you are a completely different person. 180 degrees. You don't have your emotional bouts. You know, sometimes I'd wonder what Judy am I going to get today? Right. Some days I'm fine. And some days I'm really moody with certain things he would say and I'd snap and I didn't have that anymore. And so he said, if you want to be carnivore for the rest of your life, sometimes I forget how bad it was. And it used to be really bad. And now I see how much you've come back to life. And so if you want to stay this way forever, I'm in full support. That's beautiful. And I think that's, that's pretty telling, right? No, of course it is. And it's these kind of conversations. I didn't think we were going to spend as much time on this, but I'm, I'm glad we are, Judy, because there there is next to no acknowledgement that food can have an impact to your overall mental health. I think there's an intuitive acceptance that food can make you happy in the moment, right? You know, I've had a shit day going, you know, have a big carby pasta meal or something like that and just kind of feel yourself kind of kind of go into sleep mode and calm mode, right? right. It kind of lowers the cortisol. You kind of sense that you feel that. You know if you're stressed out, you want to eat, unless you're so stressed out you can't eat, right? We, we know right. food plays a role, but there's never been really an acceptance anywhere that I've spoken where you'd associate your experiences, everyone's experiences of maybe just not being as effervescent or um, positive or finding yourself constantly struggling with like kind of darker moments and darker thoughts. There seems to be no acknowledgement that maybe what you're eating is playing some contributing part. And maybe if you could just create a foundation of nutritional completeness and remove the antagonistic foods, then maybe the stuff that sits on top of that is a little bit easier. Of course, I, I think it would be wrong of us to say there isn't work you need to do on self, which extends beyond food, but right. it's a foundation, isn't it? And if that foundation is shaky, everything else that builds on it, on it could be tough to sustain and be consistent. And just my own anecdote, I, I spent 10 years in IT security, uh, engaging with big corporates, engaging with consultants, as a very consultant-led type role. And we had corporate cards and I was a sales guy, so I'd be traveling all around the world and all expense paid, you know, room service, whenever you want, taking clients out right. for dinner. And yeah, I would, I've never been plant-based. Um, uh, I've never been scared of fat, but I've had periods of being on a diet and then trying to cut the fat out. Um, but I must admit, I was always hangry. Uh, people knew that I couldn't be more than two or three hours away from another meal because it just starts to go a little bit wrong. And I wasn't particularly patient with people. And right. even though I had a hell of a lot of energy, and I still do, um, the energy would be really tiring. Like I could work hard, but it would knock me out. It would just be like force. It would be um, discipline, you know? Whereas now, I'm not on a carnivore diet. We can maybe speak about that in a little bit. But I'm on something a lot closer to a carnivore diet than anything else I've been, been on before. I've cut out the majority of the things we're probably going to speak about. And as a result, life is easier. It just is. 
And it's it sounds like it's a sales pitch, but it isn't. I'm my ability to manage mood, energy, go longer mentally, think harder, um, just sustain my kind of like a level head throughout the day, more patience, less thinking about food, less complication about food, less ideas of what I need to eat and how to do it. And there's none of that. That's all gone. And um I thank you for sharing that because I think we we need to continue to kind of poke and prod on the relationship between what we put in our mouths, which let's face it, should be bloody important, right? There's no right. other species on the planet where they're either confused about what they should eat, <laughs> right? Or they have a weird relationship with food. It's like, there's food, I'm eating it. And it's the food that I want. It's the food that's right for me. And I don't eat the stuff that I shouldn't eat. Like all animals have worked it out. But for some reason, right, we're really, really confused about what we should put in our mouths. And, and we're surprised that, you know, chronic bad decisions have an effect, whether it be on health or mental health. So one last question I had before we get into some of the kind of more kind of techie stuff. Um, how much of your decision to be plant-based was uh, moral or ethical or planet sustainability type uh, ideas? And um, how difficult was it to start leaning in on me after having not done so for such a long time? So when I first started, it was completely superficial. So it was, you know, I wanted to look thinner. And then when I became plant-based, you know, then I, it, it just happens that it becomes that kind of a lifestyle. And so then I started you know, learning about all the things that meat does to the planet, meat does to your body, you know, how the animal rights are just taken away. And so I became a, um, that, then I became an animal rights activist, I would say passively though. And so I watched all the movies um, put out by the plant-based people. And I used to tell my family, everyone, how bad meat is for them. You know, I used to compare it to you know, all the deaths that happen and then what you can save if you were to just not even eat meat for a day. And so I was successful in getting some people to stop eating meat, actually. And I never thought about it that until right now. Um, and then when I decided to eat meat, I did think, oh, no, well, there goes my identity, right? So you start becoming that person that, oh, oh, Judy doesn't eat meat. So whenever we go out with friends, uh, they had to think about what I was going to eat. Mm -hmm. And it's ironic, actually, because they do that now with me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I guess I'm always the difficult person there. Uh, so, you know, it was, oh, Judy's really healthy. You should talk to her about diet. Like, that was the person I always was. And it's funny because now that I'm meat-based, no one ever says those kinds <laughs> of things. They never say, oh, you should talk to Judy, her diet. Even though I became a nutritional therapist. Yeah, don't speak I, to her. She's She's got weird right? ideas now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's like, oh, don't, yeah, she's an, ex now I get the, oh, she's kind of extreme with dining. That's, that's, it's unfortunate, but so yeah, it was definitely hard to let go of an identity, but it just came to a point where, you know, I would tell my, so only my husband and I knew that I started eating just meat. And so when I would go out and if I would eat some of the meat that was out there, I would say, yeah, I started eating meat a little bit. I incorporated it, but you know, I would say, oh yeah, I already ate plants at home before I came, came. And that's kind of how I dealt with it for a little bit. And then I was like, you know what? I don't know why, if I know how good meat is for us, who cares if I'm one of the people that kind of start the movement in my own small communities. So if I were to just say, yeah, I only eat meat, 
And of course it became a topic of discussion, but after a while I was, you know, I embraced who I was, um, that I only eat meat and Hey, my mental health is good. Um, I used to be deathly afraid of anyone knowing about my disordered eating, um, especially in the Asian community where everyone's kind of naturally thin and there's a kind of sense of perfectionism and you don't want people to know, oh, you were that way because you had that or you were sick or you used something, right? And so it was very prideful for me, honestly, to share about it. But I just got to a point where I'm like, I don't care. If this is what, if my journey will help someone um, along the way, then I am willing to be fully open because I know I'm not at that place. It's a part of my past, but it's helped me to be able to understand my clients, right? So people that are struggling with sugar, I get it. I've been there. I've struggled for 12 years with the kind of walking back and forth to the pantry and struggling and uh, wanting to use it as like a scapegoat or just obsessing over what should your next meal be to fit in the calories. I've been there and I've done that. And now I embrace it and I share and, you know, anyone that's willing to listen, I'll share because again, I really think if anything, we need to clean up our diet so that our next generation has a chance. One thing I wanted to talk about before we get into plant specifics is just some quick snippets about mental health. So I took SSRIs, which are basically serotonin, you know, they mm -hmm. allow the serotonin to not be um, taken up. And so there's a little bit more in your brain, right? So the thought process is maybe something imbalanced with serotonin in your brain, and that's what's causing the uh, depression. So that's what a lot of people start with. But if you think about it, 90% of your serotonin is produced in your gut. Now, the serotonin that's in your gut cannot go into the blood, I mean the brain, so it can't get past the blood-brain barrier. But if you think about our body as all these chemical reactions and that everything is connected through the CNS or whatever it is, they definitely talk to each other. And so if you know that 90% of your serotonin, and then that's also how the melatonin is produced, which helps you to sleep at night, if you know that 90% is produced in your gut, and then we are eating a lot of plant-based plant foods, which the ultimate issue with them is that it damages the gut, then you have to wonder, maybe our mood is being affected because we are eating the wrong foods that one, cause gut damage, but two, that are not producing the serotonin because serotonin is pr primarily produced from proteins like tryptophan that's in meats and amino acids. So maybe we are not eating the right foods to create the building blocks to then produce our hormones and our positive mental health. Dopamine is the same way. So all of these neurotransmitters, a lot of it or the majority of it is created in our gut. It's not in our brain. And you have to wonder then if we're eating the wrong foods, maybe we're not fueling our mental health to be good. The other thing is our brain is 60% fat. So 25% of all the cholesterol in our body is produced in the brain. And so if you think about that, if the brain is the primary fuel source is fat, and then we are saying, oh, no, no, we need low cholesterol numbers, right? Saturated fat is so bad for you, but saturated fat is a, you know, cholesterol is a form of that. And then we start taking statins. Well, one, when you are eating a lot of cholesterol rich foods, your body has a balance. It has levers that if it knows that, you know, the majority of the cholesterol in the body is produced within the body. But if you're consuming a lot of excess cholesterol, your body will kind of, you know, pull the brakes a little bit and try to balance it. And so if you are now taking 
cholesterol-lowering medications like statins because, hey, we don't fit the bill in terms of the cholesterol markers. And so now we need to lower it. And so we get on these medications. How much of the cholesterol from the brain is getting removed too? And so there are correlations, and I know correlations don't mean causation, but there are correlations where men, especially men that have high cholesterol and then take statins, have mood disorders. They become more angry, more violent, more depressed, right? And the question again goes, well, if 60% of your brain is cholesterol and then you're taking cholesterol-reducing medications, can that be affecting our mental health? And so it then becomes very easy to understand how food can affect you from a physical, mental, everything um, point of view. And you've just spoken about neurotransmitters and hormones, but on top of that, we've also got energy management issues for the brain, right? I know it's a, right. it's a glucose monster, right? I know it consumes glucose, but it's it, it needs to be able to balance the glucose, not be overridden by it, and also have periods of time of using alternative fuel sources. Um, yes. And if it's not doing that, I mean, I, you know, I've heard about uh, Alzheimer's being described really as a energy management issue of the brain, where it can no longer pivot and use energy in the right, appropriate, evolutionary consistent way. It's just being bombarded. It's being intoxicated by glucose and there's too much of it. And, you know, we've got friends or family members who have passed away through Alzheimer's and we would remember that they would just be constantly binging on cookies and snacks from um, from the pantry because they they were their body their brain was addicted to sugar because they couldn't burn fat right they couldn't go into fat burning mode so they were continuing to push the carbs um, that was then messing up their sleep you do that for forty years uh, and hey presto you know your your brain isn't just neurologically sorry isn't just from a neurotransmitter perspective not getting the right um, hormones and neurotransmitters, but neurologically, it's now breaking down and not functioning the way it should do. Um, can you speak yeah, to that at I, all? Have you done any research into Alzheimer's and the effect? Because obviously, that's that's a mental disorder in its own right, as, as well as being a brain disorder. Yes. So let's. I can give you a really interesting anecdote. So there was a lady that has um, a friend's mother had. Alzheimer's and she was refusing to eat. So they put her in the hospital and it's interesting because she wasn't eating. She ended up getting into ketosis. So within a few days of not eating and maybe she had some water, I'm not really sure all the nuances, but she wasn't eating and she was actually acting more normal. So her brain kind of mental health started seeming okay. And then they started, you know, feeding her the applesauce and whatever they feed you in hospitals of, you know, sugar ridden foods. And she was back to how she was. Mm. And it's just unfortunate. If we had different dietary guidelines that would say, hey, we need to eat more fats. We need to eat less processed sugars and um, added carbohydrates. Then, you know, maybe they would change the way they're feeding in the hospital. And maybe that wouldn't have happened to her. If yeah. we think about Alzheimer's, the way that it, from my kind of limited understanding, um, the way that it happens really is that you have glucose molecules in the brain. And they're starting to get starved. So whatever the reason it's happening, no longer are they able to get the glucose from your foods. And so you have cells that start becoming, they, that they start starving. And so instead of getting, 
you know, possibly using ketones and using that energy for uh, brain health, they just start starving and they start dying. And so as your brain cells in the brain start just dying off, that's how Alzheimer's becomes more and more prevalent. Mm. So if you think of how we feed our brains or bodies with glucose, you know, let's just take a step back into like even the 1800s. So the eight in the 1800s, the average person ate about 10 kilograms of sugar a year. And then in 2009, now we eat about 80 kilograms. And I think it's even more that wow. now than even back then. So that comes out to about 176 pounds per person per year. And it sounds like a lot, right? So, wow, 80 kilograms, that's, there's no way I eat that many, uh, sh- that much sugar, but it actually comes out to about 215 grams of carbs a day. And there are lots of people that eat 200 grams of carbs a day. Now, maybe they're saying it's just added sugar. And sure, I'm sure a lot of people don't eat 200 grams of added sugar, but I think it's the same. The point is that we have now significantly are eating a lot more sugar than even just in the 1800s. And why is that, right? Sugar itself is very addictive. Um, It's known to dampen the immune system. Um, If you look at obese people, I believe it's their white cells. So their immune system, they have less of it because their body is just struggling with all the excess sugar. Um, Our blood sugar, so our body has about five liters of blood. And so when we, and if you think about, so I've, I don't know what it is exactly in milliliters, um, but for uh, just somebody that has a normal blood sugars, it's about 80 milligrams per deciliter. Do you know what that happens to be in the milliliters? No, milliliters? I, I don't know the conversion, but it, it doesn't matter. Okay. We'll, we'll just go but, with, with your one. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just, it's 80. Um, it's 80. Um, and that's about four grams of sugar in the blood at any given time. I did the math. It's in my book. And so when someone is diabetic, it's 40 points higher, which is about 120. I think it's like 6.0. I'm Something pretty like sure. That. I don't yeah, know. But, in, in, the, in the five to sixes, I think you're about right. Okay. Yeah. So- And so it's when you do the conversion, all the difference in the blood sugar in terms of sugar from a normal blood sugar person and a diabetic, it's only a quarter teaspoon of sugar in the blood. That's the only difference. It's such a small amount of sugar. And so if you think about that, so if insulin just cannot manage just a quarter teaspoon and now you're diabetic just from that, and then even going a little bit more above that is where, you know, it becomes life-threatening. You have to wonder then how much, you know, so four grams is very little. So if you're eating about 300 grams of carbs a day, so if you're having a hundred grams of carbs and it doesn't matter if it's from bread or sugar, if it's just a hundred grams of carbohydrates, cause they're all broken down into sh- simple sugars in your body. If we're eating 300 grams and hundred grams per meal, or even 50, when we have four grams in our blood, imagine what happens to our bodies. So glucose goes up. And so insulin has to be produced to then bring it down so that your blood sugar doesn't skyrocket. And again, it can be life-threatening. And if you do that over and over, it just becomes a tax. And so what ends up happening is your endocrine system, which is your hormone system, has to now have the adrenals produce cortisol to balance your blood sugar. So cortisol is normally just used as an emergency state. You got in in an accident you've had this, you know, traumatic uh, event. And so it's supposed to be an emergency case of just pumping out blood sugar, 
in your body to then, you know, have you run or have the adrenaline to do whatever you need to do to survive. So when we are consuming way too much sugar or carbohydrates and insulin isn't working as well or not doing its job as well, then we have to constantly use cortisol to manage the blood sugar. So when our blood sugar starts dropping because we haven't eaten sugar in just two hours and then we feel that fatigue or crankiness or low mood or low energy, then cortisol can come in and then put put up the blood sugar so you're, you don't keel over. And so you have to wonder, why are we eating in a way that is constantly tapping into our adrenal system, which is again, our cortisol, this is our this is supposed to be a just temporary flight or flight, you know, um, effect. And when we are constantly using that, then we have to wonder why are our hormones, you know, going in the trash, the thyroid and the sex hormones, they're all related. So if your body is focusing on producing just cortisol from a nutritional perspective, or even from an energy perspective, well, there goes your sex hormones and your thyroid, because again, if your body is choosing survival, so to make sure it's managing its blood sugar, it doesn't care if you're not going to make a baby, right? Oh, well, you can make it tomorrow. Maybe you'll never have it. Um, if your thyroid is um, under-functioning, oh, well, you just won't have hair. You'll be have thinner skin. You'll feel cold. But hey, you could survive. Whereas if your body cannot produce cortisol, you can die. So if you think about all of these things, there's no... It, it makes sense why we are struggling with Alzheimer's, right? Sure, some of it could be genetic, but we are struggling way more with Alzheimer's now than we ever have before. What if we just stopped eating so much sugar and stopped putting our body in these constant emergency states of using excess chronic cortisol, which then even causes more gut disease, right? So the higher your constant cortisol and production of inflammation in the body, then you will have more gut permeability. And remember, everything goes back to the gut. So then again, it goes back to, so is that affecting some of the mental health? If we were to just be able to produce ketones, which is in form of energy using fat, which is how babies are actually made, right? So if you think about when infants are really young, they sleep through the night for sometimes 12 hours. How do they do that? It's because they're producing ketones, right? So they are using the fat on their bodies to be okay. If you think about a baby and they get out of the shower, you know, we can shiver because we're cold. Babies don't shiver. And the reason is they have a lot of the fat, the good fat on their body, and they can use that as energy forms. So why are we eating a diet that is completely opposite from what we are naturally supposed to be, you know, even born with? Do you know, and I, these are the reasons. I, I was just going to say, I, I love where you're going with that because that was going to be like a big kind of philosophical or kind of reflective question. So you've been speaking in part around these are non-natural processes. This idea of having an abundance of glucose it seems inconsistent with our biology. But if we just kind of like step away from trying to get overly complicated about this and talk about gut health and why and, you know, blood sugar and why, I'd like to ask the question around just like our evolutionary kind of consistent way of being. Like we we would have had carbs. Now, you know, I would like your thoughts on our direction of travel evolutionarily, but we would have accepted and engaged with fruits uh, and and some plants, especially or mostly when they were available, right? So mostly within the summer, we would have engaged 
with fruits and vegetables. But bear in mind, vegetables probably wouldn't have been processed the way we can today. So yeah. there'll be there'd only be select vegetables that we had special techniques to be able to detoxify. But we would have engaged with carbs, but they would have not been dominant if you think about, you know, on a savanna or just, you know, just think about, you know, thousands of years ago we would have not been engaging with this amount of carbs and we absolutely would have been hunting. It just stands to reason that we we would have been doing that. Um, you look at all the cave paintings, you look at just our, our level, evolutionary track, you look at, you know, the studies on on the isotopes and so forth, and you can, you can get a real strong sense that we absolutely evolved with meat central and we, have, we could not have evolved with the level of glucose that we're burdening our body. All, all the highly processed breads, and um, soft drinks, and you know all the all the seed oils. It's just it's it is completely inconsistent. So the question I had for you was, what is your read on animal protein and fat as it relates to the human diet? Do you think it was part of, lots of, or exclusively part of our diet at some point through our evolution? Yeah. So I agree with you. Where I think that I don't think it's that plants themselves are bad. I definitely think we have processed them a lot. And in the book, I talk a lot about how, you know, the way that we produce plant foods now, the toxins we use on top of them, the way that they're genetically modified, a lot of those things are making the plants even worse. So it's not really just that plants are bad. It's just that there are some things in them. But if you think of it just from just if you were to think of it just from a, uh, so Weston A. Price, he was a dentist that traveled the world because he was just trying to find indigenous cultures and what their diets were and how it would affect your teeth and, you know, just the way that you, your kind of jaw is. Um, and he, even just traveling that bit, he found that all the indigenous groups, they were eating meat as a focal point. So meats, fats, they were revered. Sure. Some of them had plants, some of them had heavier depended on the area, but in general, even if you think about if we were hunter gatherers and we were collecting, I mean, it takes, imagine them, right? So I just said that I was eating a bunch of quinoa and lentils and spinach. So imagine them having to collect 16, uh, 16 ounces or one pound of spinach for every person in the tribe or the community. That's all, a lot all year of long throughout the winter. And, you know, <laughs> all year long. That's right. Can't be done. Right? So, <laughs> Depending on climate, it just can't be done. Is, right. And so the thing is when Weston A. Price was traveling, and I think this was the early 1900s, he found that every group, you know, there was no group that was plant-based whatsoever. He, he was hoping to find a group that was vegetarian or vegan, but he found none. Everyone was saving the most nutrient dense foods for the babies or for the moms that were expecting or nursing. And all of the foods were either like salmon roe, which is, you know, the babies, the eggs of the salmon, um, a lot of the liver, uh, lots of meat, lots of fat. And so we have to wonder again, why are we eating so different? Even from a hundred years ago, a mm. hundred years ago, there really wasn't heart disease. Uh, there was a salesman that was selling like a new contraption to, see how your heart was doing. I think it was the EKG. I'm not hundred percent sure what exact machine it was, but he couldn't get it sold because doctors were like, why would I need this? No one has heart disease. And now it's the number one killer, right? In the U S it's heart disease is the number one cause of death. And just a hundred years ago, it was almost non-existent. So again, it's so easy to go, well, 
We're eating less meat now than ever. We're recommended to not eat saturated fats, so less eggs, less butter, but we're sicker than ever. Um, I just said stats uh, not too long ago in my uh, Instagram where 10 million more Americans became obese in just 10 years, 10 million. So if it's really the meat, why are we sicker than ever yet we're eating less? Right. So these are the things that you don't even have to go long ago. Mm. Of course, long ago, it makes sense. I mean, if you kill one animal, though, you can have maybe 400 pounds of meat. But I don't think you can collect that much plants. And I'm sure the fruits were not available 24 seven as it is now. So, again, it's just the if you dig a little deeper, the logic is just not there, whether it's from an evidence based perspective, from a nutritional perspective, from a historical perspective. But we have just believed the narrative that the mass gives us, right? So the USDA guidelines, which then bleeds to everywhere else, says that we should limit saturated fats because it causes heart disease. We should be limiting red meat. We should eat more plant-based because it's good for us. And if you think about it, almost all processed foods, they're plant-based. They're made from soy. They're made from corn, high fructose corn syrup, soybean oil. All of that's plant-based. So there's hardly we are any a, processed meats. Yeah. I know there's like salamis and a few things like that, but for the most part, you're right. The stuff that you get in a box or a package, whether it's on on the shelf or anywhere around the middle aisles, it's it's all plant based to some degree, right? Whether it's chocolate or, as right. you say, bread or cookies or pastries. You know, it, we're, we're centered on corn and wheat predominantly, and everything kind of like comes from there. And then every once in a while, you'll see something. Um, with, you know, real plants, you know, uh, you know, the green stuff, uh, you know, the leafy stuff. Um, but that isn't a dominant part of most people's diet and people right. pushing towards plant-based advocacy, I guess they find a lack of sati- satiation. Or maybe I could ask you, like, if you were just slamming down spinach all day long, um, you know, with some cucumber and tomatoes and maybe a little right. bit of olive oil and some seeds, I mean, you're going to need something else, right? You need something more substantial. And what what would you go to when you need substance? It's going to be bread and soy, I guess. Yes, um, definitely that, the beans. But none of it would satiate me. And I really think it was because of um, I was t- eating a very low-fat diet. And so that's why I was drinking lots of liquids to just fill my stomach. But, And I think that is why at the end of the night, my brain would be telling me, go you know, eat other stuff no one will know that type of thing. So then I would just start eating. Oftentimes I would just go to the market and buy like microwave foods that were really high in fat. But again, it was vegetarian. And then, you know, then I would be like, oh no, all of this stuff is going to make me gain weight. So what about ice cream and stuff? Did you, did you go for like high fat dairy as a, as a escape when you needed, you needed to quote unquote cheat or you didn't, you just didn't go there. You didn't go to, you had like rice cream or something instead. (laughs) Uh, I did have ice cream, not that often, but you're right. Now I'm thinking about it. So yes, I did have ice cream. Um, I wouldn't have that as kind of my normal diet. So my normal diet would have maybe some Froyo or some, um, Greek yogurt, that type of thing, but lots of, oh, and I do remember consuming. So I actually used to buy fiber one all the time. And so I would have bowls and bowls of fiber in the morning because I thought that was good for me. It would make me feel satiated. I'd have lots of oatmeal. So all of a lot, lots of those kinds of foods, but when I would actually, you know, cheat as you're saying, or, you know, eat kind of off plan, then I would eat 
yeah, any ice cream I could get a hold of. Sometimes I'd try to go for the lower fat, but it's interesting. You're right. I would go for the full fat dairy. Sounds but not like you were cra- craving for something yeah. you didn't realize you needed, right? You, you, you having it, but didn't know uh, cognitively that you were reaching for something that your body craved for. Not just the sugars, because of course you would have got a hit of that, but you would have got a hit of healthy fats, albeit within right. an unhealthy food, but you would still be getting some of that, right? Yeah. So I just talked about this not too long ago, but our body has innate wisdom, right? So that means that basically if we were to really trust our body and listen, it will, it gives us cues. So for example, the perfect example is, you know, if we were to open a a container and there was bad spoiled food in there, your first instinct is that you feel this scent in your stomach and it's telling you don't eat it. Right. Mm -hmm. So that is our innate wisdom. We have other cues. So as an example, you can do the coca pulse test where you can try food in your mouth and um, after, so you can check your pulse for one minute and then put that food in your mouth and then see if your pulse goes up at least six points within this, uh, within another minute. And if it does, then it's probably your body's telling you that you're sensitive to it. But we have forgotten a lot of these little cues that our body actually tells us, mm. right? So some people that are sensitive to certain foods, their ears may itch or they're kind of feel their face flush. These are the indications. And so if you think about it, when our, our brain is pretty smart, so if it needs the fat and we just don't have it, it's going to make us crave it and it'll make you crave it in the food that you will, you'll be motivated to get, right? Mm. So if, if ice cream was the only way that I was going to give my body fat or some of the dairies nutrients, then that's what my body's going to probably push me because there's no way of getting me to eat meat. Right. So when people are craving some chocolate or craving some nuts, it might just be the magnesium or the potassium, right? It's whatever the brain knows that can get you motivated to go eat it. Even if you're eating the crappiest bag of chips, maybe that's the only way your body knows that you'll eat some fat. Yeah. And so it's really interesting. I think you're absolutely right. I think we hadn't thought about it that way because say, say you were completely starved of good, healthy fats and your body's, your body's pushing you for it. Like, get me some, it's unlikely you're going to go and cook up a steak and cut off the, you know, the fat bit of it on a, on a ribeye and just go chew on that. Like, that doesn't look appealing for most people. I actually love it, <laughs> but it, it doesn't look appealing for most people. You, we're not centered around having that kind of addictive um, desire for natural fats like that when you think about fat by itself. Uh, it's usually in a package or something, right? Whether it be in an egg or whether it be a piece of steak with some fat on, you wouldn't just go for fat by itself. Um, but I hadn't really thought that that's what we need but the body doesn't ask for that. It asks for the thing that we will tolerate mentally or based, right. based on our kind of uh, ethics or decisions. That's really interesting. Yeah, it'll just, um, I, more often than not, when there's a craving, there's usually a nutrient deficiency. And so your body's going to crave the food that you're normally eating to get it. Mm, yeah. Um, I, I had a question on on this. So I... I Let's just be clear. Are you on a pure carnivore diet right now, Judy? Yes. So, well, let me take a step back. So the first year I was hundred percent purely carnivore as in, even if I had any little bit of seasoning or sugar, I would not eat it. Um, 
as I've been working with more and more clients, I realize that you know, with gut health and just being able to be metabolically flexible is more important than just, okay, so I can only tolerate beef. So I'm just going to eat beef and then I'm not going to eat anything else. I I kind of think that's a bandaid. So Mm. you need to figure out why you're only able to tolerate beef. And then the goal is to work on the gut or whatever areas you need to, so that you can tolerate more foods, the more foods you can tolerate. I think that's really optimal health. And so now I've really kind of had a mental shift where I'm okay if we go to a barbecue place and they have, you know, a little bit of seasoning on the meat. Um, I eat it now. I used to never. And so I would say in the last six months, I've become a little bit more flexible in that. So let's say there's some kimchi um, at the table. Maybe I'll have like one little bite of it. But in general, I do feel better eating just meat based. But I test myself to see, in a sense, can I handle it, right? So does my stomach tolerate it? Do I have any um, ill adverse reactions. So I'd say I'm like 99% carnivore. Right. Okay. And do you ever think about it? Do you ever get any cravings for your old way of eating, whether it be, you know, a nice lush salad, uh, you know, that's, you know, in the spring or the summer, it was was appetizing, right? It it looked, they look good. They're colorful and it's different texture on, on, on your palate. Do you ever think, I kind of miss some of those foods or, or not. So the first year I did, the, I never realized how much I like salads until I stopped eating them. Mm-hmm. And I actually, that was what I missed. Um, so the first year I, I did miss salads and then, but it was, I definitely know it wasn't from a nutritional perspective, but it was, I kind of missed that crunchy texture. And I think that pork rinds kind of took care of that, but I did eat a small salad probably in the last year. And I had the worst bloat and pain. And I was like, I forgot about all of these symptoms that you don't have on a meat-based diet. You know, you get really bloated and you have gas and you just feel um, just, just a lot of bloat. And, uh, and it reminded me of how I used to feel. And I completely forgot that. And so I've never craved salad. I don't crave it at all anymore in terms of sugar and any of those types of foods. If you eat sufficient amounts of fat, you should not be craving any of that anymore. I do notice if I eat just moderate protein and I don't have a lot of fat, I notice that I don't feel as satiated. And so when I up the fat uh, within a day, I feel fine. So I I definitely think if you're not having the fuel source from fat, then your body may crave, um, you know, like the quickest form of sugar uh, energy, which will be glucose. Mm. So that is one thing, but in general, um, I really believe that if you remove carbohydrates from your body for a long while, your gut bugs that kind of live off of the carbohydrates will eventually die off or be dormant. And then you just, it won't tell your brain to crave those foods. If you think about how we have gas um, after eating certain foods, the human body does not produce gas. Those gases are from carbohydrates. And so it's probably why a lot of meat-based advocates say that they have zero gas. Yeah, it's true. Same. It's not It's not produced from, it's produced from carbohydrates. It's it's amazing, isn't it? Because uh, again, I'm not carnivore, um, not at all really. Okay. Um, I eat lots of different plant-based stuff, especially over the weekend when, you know, we do roasts. We love a roast um, and I'm Greek. So, you know, my Greek okay. heritage is lots of you know, meat-centric diet. And I didn't really think about that until I started really, wanting to optimize my diet. I thought, you know what? My ancestral diet is the diet. I love it. And it's great, which is 
meat is the focus. Uh, usually have a salad, a little bit of fresh salad around it. I think about like some lamb kebabs, a little bit of salad. That that would do me. I'd be really, really happy with that. Um, but over the weekend, you know, we, I live in England. We do a lot of roasts. So we'll like, have potatoes. We'll have some broccoli cheese. We might have some carrots. Now, when I do that, I accept the consequence. I do feel full, like really full and mm-hmm. bloated and dependent on the day and, and the, what, how much I had of the broccoli, for example, I can be, yeah, quite windy. And when I'm during the week, I have something which is much more closer to your diet, but I have a bit of rice and a few other bits and pieces and I get no bloat and no gas. And it's amazing. Like my, my, my shits don't stink, like literally. It's, it's incredible. Yes. <laughs> um, right, and I, right. feel, I feel great. My energy is brilliant. Over the weekend, I have a big meal and I crash and it's, it's all a bit off. But I enjoy the food so much that we kind of tolerate that. So the question around that, well, two things. One is I feel that I'm listening to my my kind of lineage and I'm going with that. What are your thoughts on that? And then the second question is, is all gut feedback, bad feedback, or is some bloat and some gas? Like, it, does it always mean a bad thing? Is Because I understand your point. But I'm just wondering if the, are, are we just are we maybe overthinking it and perhaps being too oversensitive and trying to eliminate that experience when maybe that experience isn't actually so bad, just not on a chronic basis. Sure, and I agree with your last statement. So I I think if you have a little bit of bloat, a little bit of gas, and it's not terrible, right? So you just might have a toot here and there, that type of thing, and you feel fine, then it's again, it's resiliency, having the body be able to handle a, you know, a variety is ideal and you don't have to like heal over because I work with some people that are really sick. So if they have um, a little bit of vegetables or beans or something, then they have to literally lie down because their body is now breaking out in hives and they just, you know, their immune system is just now highly overreactive and you just don't want to be in that place. And so the easiest way to kind of remove a lot of the trigger foods is to remove a lot of the plant-based foods. Mm. So if you were to eat, you know, like the way that you're saying you're eating. So on the weekends, you eat a more of a variety. Maybe you don't have to be as quote unquote on like you do on the weekdays. And so you eat that and the next day you might feel a little bit more sluggish than you would if you were to eat, you know, just more meat. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. So if you can tolerate it, if you feel fine in general, I think that's a, you know, a great option as long as your gut health is good. If you have a little bit of gas and bloat, that's not terrible either. It's just when it's in excess, right? So mm-hmm. as an example, SIBO, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, the signs of it is excess gas, right? So if your small intestine, like an, a few, maybe 30 minutes to an hour after you eat, gets extremely bloated and you, um, it's either the methane or the hydrogen in your body now producing excess gas and it's to the point that it's so painful and you have all this excess that's when it becomes bad. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and it's hard because we define things all in the same, with the same words, but they're different meanings. Right. So if I say, Hey, on a carnivore diet, I've healed a lot of my gut issues. I have no more gas. That is different from someone that hasn't like SIBO or leaky gut and has gas issues. Right. So those are different. And so where, what you were saying, I think it makes sense if it's just occasional gas and that type of thing. I think that's totally fine. It can happen, right? If you drink sparkling water, you may uh, burp and that's fine. Right. But I think 
when you have SIBO and you hear that gas, it's a totally different terminology. And the thing is, a lot of people that do come to carnivore do have those types of illnesses like colitis um, that have Crohn's. And and so for them to hear you can have no gas, it's a huge difference. And so for them, I would say that that's when I when I talk about gut health, it's really for people that are that sick. Um, but in terms of lineage, yes, I think it's ideal. So that's what Weston A. Price w- is, um, traditional diets and stuff. If you look at your lineage and what they ate, you may be able to be more tolerant. One thing I read, and it's been a while, but I do remember reading that Japanese people may be able to tolerate more rice because I think some of their livers might be a little bit bigger. And maybe it's because, you know, generationally, the liver just got bigger to kind of handle a lot of the rice in the diet. I mean, I don't know how true that is, but I do believe that as you know, we live in certain areas, more food will be plentiful and then our bodies will biologically be able to handle, handle those types of foods more. What's so, your, what's your um, traditional diet? What's a Korean diet look like? Like from a kind of meat to plant ratio kind of thing. So Korea... I guess it really depends on how far back you go. And when you go really far back, I, you know, I I guess this is a little bit of ignorance. I'm not really sure. I know there's a lot of fish, um, but generally I would say it's 50, 50. So lots of plants, but interestingly, the plants, the rice, they properly prepare them in the way that even like the traditional diets recommend. So my mom, when she would add little bits of uh, like, um, maybe some beans or peas into the rice, she would soak them for days. And so that's one way that you can remove some of the anti-nutrients is to soak them. And then she would clean the rice until the water was really clean. So it can, again, remove a lot of the toxins. I didn't know why she was doing that, but she that's how she prepares it. Um, they eat a lot of fermented foods, a lot of fermented vegetables, where that's where you can get good prebiotics. And there wasn't a lot of carbohydrates other than maybe... I mean, uh, fruit carbohydrates. So not a lot of fruits as they have now. So now that they're introducing more of the Western diet, now diabetes is becoming really rampant in Asia. But if they had never added all, all the fruits, the grains and all that, I mean, the, I guess the more Westernized uh, carbohydrates and they were just eating rice, I think they would have been fine. But it's just- What kind the, of meats were they? Would, do you associate with a Korean diet? So they're really big on pork. And they're really big on fish. And I think the reason they're not big on beef is only because it it's an island yeah. or a peninsula. And there's just not a lot of cows there. So a lot of it has to be imported. And so it becomes really expensive. And Korea, even just 50 years ago, was a very poor country. Hmm. And the reason I ask that is, you know, you're just a hop, skip and a jump from, you know, your mama or, or your grandma in terms right. of, you know, their, their food choices. And um, I don't know about their health, but you would assume that if they were able to keep to their traditional norms, that they would still be healthy. Yet you've chosen a diet that is inconsistent with that. Now, I would have assumed a Korean diet was had quite a lot of meat, whether it be different types of stuff, like um, n- not just the traditional kind of American English, you know, animal husbandry, but other things. Um, but you, you're you're kind of you've stepped away from that in a in a generation. Obviously, going plant-based, that would have been completely inconsistent. Going highly processed, that would be inconsistent. But now going pure meat-based and with meats that perhaps you wouldn't have seen much, that's quite inconsistent too. Or, or 
Do you disagree? Yeah, so I can tell you some interesting stuff. So Korean, I know Korean food now is really popular for Korean barbecue, but I would say that we do a lot of barbecue in terms of pork. But if you were to go to actual Korea, there's not a whole ton of uh, beef. So I remember going to like an Outback, which is an American steakhouse. And I think I got just a standard steak. Or no, no, no. My friend got a standard steak and I think she paid like $60 and that was 15 years ago. And so it's just interesting how expensive it is, right? So that same steak in comparison in the States might be 20 bucks. So that's how, you know, it's not as prevalent now, you know, Korea has advanced a lot in the last 15, 20 years. So I'm sure it's cheaper, but in general, that's why pork is really, really um, more economical, but you see people eating it everywhere. Uh, My mom, so let's talk about my grandmother. She immigrated here when she was in her fifties and she got diabetes. I don't know when she was always really thin. So you would never think she was someone that didn't have good health. Her doctors told her that all her organs were very, very healthy and even her late eighties, but she had diabetes and because of the diabetes with complications with her lungs, she ended up passing from that. But I always wonder if she, if I, if we knew how to handle the diabetic kind of complications better, would she have lived longer? And I absolutely believe it. She was very, very healthy, but we didn't know what to do with it. So we put her on metformin. If her blood sugar was dropping, we'd give her orange juice. And then on other times we would make her not eat ice cream. Right. So the obvious ones, but my mom would make her in the morning since it was harder for her to chew. She would never eat meats. Um, maybe she would have some fish. But in general, she was living off of baked potatoes and my mom would make her smoothies. So it ha- would have an avocado. So there was a little bit of good fat, but it would be servings and servings of fruit, not knowing that that's also adding to her you know, diabetic numbers. And so my grandmother passed, but my mom was following in the sh- same shoes, although she was a little bit unhealthier. So she had more weight on her. Not a lot, but she did. So in her 60s, again, had diabetes. Um, She had really bad menopause, which again is affected completely by excess cortisol and the adrenal use. So the worse your kind of blood sugar handling over the years and cortisol, the worse your menopause is going to be. So she had extreme hot flashes, intense weight gain, lots of sugar consumed. And she was taking metformin. She started developing asthma. She had dermatitis. Her niece would swell so bad that she had to lay off it. Her shoe size was a, I think if you in the, she was like a size six and then she would have to wear like a size eight because by the end of the day, her leg would swell. Yes. And, but I luckily found carnivore, right? So she was eating, um, she was taking the metformin and even in the mornings, her blood sugar was still very out of range because she just didn't know how to manage it. So she would be taught, you know, you need to eat whole grains. And so she would stop eating the chocolate and the other junk foods, but she would still eat the rice because it was okay. Or she uh, actually started eating brown rice. And so when I started eating carnivore and my mental health changed, I really, and I started going to nutritional therapy, even though they didn't really believe me, my parents, my mom was like, you know what? My health is so bad. I wake up five times a night. I, she wakes up having a hard time breathing. And so she would have to use her inhaler. And so we got her to switch to a ketogenic carnivore diet. So she eats about 5%. Maybe she has some kimchi still. 
she has some avocados, but that's really it. And then the rest is just meat. And again, this is not the way that we eat or, you know, she grew up eating whatsoever, but she has reversed. I'm sorry. But she's better. I'm sorry. Yeah. So she, no, 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 no. So she, yes. So she reversed everything. She is no longer diabetic. Right. And she's 70 now, or she's turning 70 this year. So no diabetes, no asthma, no waking up in the middle of the night, no dermatitis and no knee pain, which she used to go to her, um, get, you know, she would get acupuncture. She went to Korea to see if she could do some excess healing. And all of that was related to the imbalance and inflammation of the food she was eating and the excess sugar. And all of that is gone now because she, um, she removed all the carbohydrates or mostly all the carbohydrates from her diet. So she is a firm believer And the thing is, I think after decades of eating the wrong diet that is not, you know, lines up traditionally ancestrally with our way of eating, sometimes then we have to take an extreme measure to go the other way, right? Something that's Mm -hmm. not in line with the way that ancestrally we should be eating maybe from our lineage, right? So maybe my mom could have done just fish and that type of stuff, but she was so sick from foods that she wouldn't have been eating anyway. So that's why sometimes then maybe it's, taking this, you know, just an all meat diet now to heal. And she has, and she's been eating this way for the last two years. And so now with this whole pandemic, I don't worry. Right. So she's kind of in that spot of, oh, well, she had lung issues. She had diabetes, which is a, you know, high comorbidity with um, the COVID and she's in her seventies. So if you think about it, I should be deathly afraid, but I'm not because she has taken her health into her own hands and now she doesn't take any of the medication or has the asthma or any of that. And she must feel that she's more robust. She must have a bit more confidence that she's not a sitting duck, you know? Absolutely. So because of her health journey, there are people in her community. I don't think they're trying to go fully uh, meat-based, but they eat a lot more meat seeing how much she's healed. That's incredible. Uh, it's incredible because I, I, you know, I'd like my mum to go on a similar journey. She, she, she loves the food that that I eat, but she's had many, many years of indoctrination that right. fat is bad, and she has comfort foods, and it can be expensive to eat a lot of meat. And I think there's just a number of reasons why it, it doesn't it doesn't stick, or or the or the exclusion of stuff doesn't stick. I think that's more the point. It's not the can she engage with the foods that I eat because she loves meat, eggs, cheese. She loves all of it. Um, but she also has this crutch of other foods that can't escape her for whatever reason. And she's been on a similar journey to what you've described. Um, but I'm, I'm interested about this idea of cleansing versus feeding. So without a doubt, whether we go into this or not, it's, it's um, part of the course because, you know, we, we've spoken to Sean Baker, Paul Saladino, um, Danny Vega, many others who can talk and have spoken about nutrient density. Um, sure. Sally, um, um, Sally Fallon Morell, Natasha um, Campbell McBride, they've spoken elegantly about nutrient density and how dense uh, animal foods are and how complete they are um, of both the macro and micronutrients that we need to live optimally. But Something triggered me in the conversation with Natasha where she said, I was asking her, like, you know, if if plants are so problematic, um, are you saying that we should just not eat them? 
And she had a, she said something interesting, considering she's mostly animal based. Right. She said, "No, plants have a have a place. They would have evolutionarily had a place. We would have eat them in times when you know the seasonally they're appropriate, and when it was just easy calories or easy carbs. You know, we we would soak them up when they're available. And I think that says something about how we should eat if we're healthy, which is to um, flip between feeding." which she said meat animal based foods is for feeding and plant based foods are for cleansing and she said that and I paused for a second and thought well, you know what that that chimes so well with the narratives of going on certain diets to cleanse to detoxify and people feel great because they are detoxifying because they're just full of junk for you know all their life and they go on a a plant based diet or a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet it might be hard because of all the crutches they have but they enjoy cleaning themselves out, right, of all the crap. But at some point, you need to pivot to feeding. And I think that's a problem for a lot of vegetarian and vegan um, advocates. But conversely, is it also not a problem for those that are just so devout advocates of um, meat-based diets, right? Because that's all about feeding. So how do you balance feeding with cleansing? Do you think there is a role when your gut's healthy, to intuitively have some plants to kind of respond to the body's need to quote unquote cleanse. Yeah. So if you think, so I'm a believer that, um, I, I do agree with her where I think plants, um, have a role and I think they have a good role in, I guess, medicinal uses. So some of the kind of, you could even even think of them as anti-nutrients, but they have properties that can then pull stuff from your body. They may have excess antioxidants, which you can also get from meats, but they have different properties that can actually heal certain things that um, may have impairment in the body from a medicinal perspective. So I think, you know, if you have excess candida in your body, you can use oregano oil, for example, to pull or chelate um, and remove some of the toxins. If you have um, other um, like heavy metals, you might be able to use some of the coconut um, ingredients um, the to remove some of. And I'm forgetting what the actual um, the actual medicine is, but you know, there's all these things that you could use it for. So I can see where it can be cleansing, but I wouldn't consider meat just for feeding. I do think it can be cleansing because if you think about it, if you were to remove all plant foods then you're kind of cleansing your body too in the way that you're now letting your digestive process just eat foods that are nourishing mm -hmm. and then removing any anti-nutrients or toxins that are being produced in the body or given to the body that can aggravate a system that's not functioning well. And so that's where anti-nutrients become really toxic to a body that's already kind of inundated. And so that's where I can see how meat can be cleansing in that sense. So remove all the trigger foods, let the body start kind of healing, just use the fuel sources from meat and the nutrients to rebuild the body and allow it to cleanse in that way, if that makes sense. It, it, but, to it totally does make sense if you're pivoting from a traditional, sorry, a standard American or English diet. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely is cleansing. Uh, it's like the, the base kind of form of a, 
elimination diet, isn't it, really? Like you, yes. you go to these elimination diets and they've got all these rules of what you can and can't have, but the one constant is usually some form of animal-based food. The ultimate right. elimination-based diet is just getting the complexity out and just saying, as long as it's animal-based, have it, everything else out for that period of uh, healing. So I get that. But if we were, again, we're stepping back and saying we're eating normally now, we're eating sure. consistent with our species, would you not uh, concede or agree that meat in that instance is more about nourishment and feeding, yes, uh, less yes. about cleansing at that point. Sure. So yes, I think if we were to, you know, the, the fact that we can eat plants is, and that there are, they are available. If we were to eat the kind of plants that like the way corn looked ages ago and the way that our fruits were, I think that's fine, right? On occasion. So we're not eating the majority of our plate is plant-based, um, but instead it's heavy meat and then a little bit of plants. I think it should be fine for most people that are relatively healthy. It's when we don't have the help that maybe we need yeah. to go and do, like you said, the elimination diet version of a meat-based diet. And then just see where you just kind of function better with certain plants and other plants um, that maybe you don't. The thing about our plant sources now are they are just so different than what, you know, even our ancestors ate, right? So I talk about carrots um, recently, and it's this part is actually not in my book. But if you think about carrots, like baby carrots, that's not real carrots, right? So they, that's a processed version of the full carrot, and they just cut out the parts that we want to eat. So they make baby carrots that are very convenient. Um, they're more tasty, sweeter. They make, they breed them to be sweeter. So they have more carbohydrates than a conventional, um, you know, ages ago type of mm. carrot, and they're much bigger. So the carrots that are conventional, that are not organic, they are in chlorinated water solutes. So every time you are eating those without washing them, you're eating a little bit of chlorine. And then if you were to eat organic ones, which then seem the, like the viable option, well, they're in citrox, which is known to kill bacteria. Um, it's known to kill bacteria, virus, um, and other fungus. So basically you're eating little bits of antimicrobials, antifungals, and antivirals. And if you look at the package, it always says ready to eat. And so you have to wonder when we are having gut damaging issues or gut poor gut health, you know, is it some of the foods we're eating? So in this case, maybe the carrot itself is not that bad, right? Although carrots do have oxalates, which are high in anti-nutrients, and they have the vitamin A that they're known for, but they're actually, it's actually not in the bioavailable form for the body. So you have to wonder how much of the nutrients you're even getting. But let's just say you're eating it for taste. The issue is the way that we're kind of harvesting them now, right? So why can't we just use water, right? After, after they're um, pulled out, why can't we just clean them with water and then give it a hard rub and then just eat that, right? Why do we have to put it in these things for it to last longer? And those are the things that are causing more issues to these plant-based foods. And I can go down a laundry list of the anti-nutrients and the things that it does. Um, we can talk about, for example, in teas and coffees, right? They're, it's much more common now that people drink tea or coffee with their meats, for example. Well, Teas and coffees have flavonoids, which is an anti-nutrient, and it also has tannins. So tannins are known to inhibit iron absorption. And then flavonoids are um, notorious for inhibiting mineral absorption. 
So if you're eating tea or coffee with your steak, the risk is that some of the iron from the meat will not get absorbed because of the tannins. And then the flavonoids will block some of the minerals from getting absorbed from the meat. So I really think this becomes a concern if you are mineral deficient or if you're starting to show physical symptoms of ailments or maybe even mood um, imbalances. That's when we can really start plugging away and figuring out, okay, maybe it's the diet. And if it's the diet, what can we do to improve these areas, right? And so maybe it's maybe we drink water with our food. And if we want the tea and coffee, we just drink it away from our meals so that it's inhibiting nothing else, right? So these are some of the things that they're so nuanced, but when you're sick enough that you'll kind of look into it, or if you want better health and for some reason, you know, you're taking your multivitamin, you're eating the best kinds of foods, but you're still, your health is still not there. These are the little areas that you can possibly look into, which then makes a lot of sense. Mm. If you think about plant foods, you know, animals can basically run from their predator, right? So they don't need to store toxins, but plants have no choice. They're stuck in the ground. And so if you think about that, they have to, if they want to, because they're alive too, right? So if they want to have generations to come, they have to build toxins in order so that if, you know, a predator comes and eats them, they get sick enough that you're reminded from your, I guess, uh, innate wisdom or, you know, whatever it is that, hey, maybe I shouldn't eat this again next time because it made me sick. And then all that does is the plant wins, right? The plant gets to continue its lifespan. So if you think of it from that perspective, it makes a lot of sense. The egg actually has a similar thing. Um, the egg whites I've just learned recently has, so it has albumin, which um, some people have sensitivities in terms of the protein in the egg whites, but it also has lysosome. And the reason why it has this enzyme in the egg whites is because the egg cannot travel once, you know, it's on the ground, right? So it's another protective mechanism. You can almost think of it as an anti-nutrient in the egg whites so that it's hoping that if you try to eat it, you get sick and then you leave these eggs on the floor alone. So we, nature just has these incredible ways of protecting the people, the things that can't run, right? So you have to wonder sometimes if we're getting sick, maybe it's some of the plant foods that we're eating and the anti-nutrients in them. And I can go into that if you want, but you know, it's just, I always say to my clients, it's not that I'm against broccoli, right? Obviously prepare them in the way that removes a lot of the toxins. Um, make sure you're getting the highest quality sources. If you could grow them in your garden, that's the best way to be eating plants. But if you have health ailments that just won't go away, then maybe it's time to start an elimination diet of just meat-based and then add back the plants you want in the safest manners to see if that's what was causing your issues. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that headline you said around the way in which we produce our food today, even if it's the you know the, the raw natural stuff, there's, there's pesticides, there's, as you say, there's all these processes that go into harvesting them, you know, big yields and keeping them, you know, good shelf life and good transport capability, bigger and rounder and whatever, all that right. kind of stuff. There's a lot going on there. I, I completely get that. And it's not something that I spend enough time thinking about that. That process part can and probably is a problem, uh, especially chronically eating some of those foods. I think there might be a delineation between some US process and some European yeah. processing. Very true. <laughs> so it may be 
less of an issue, but still an issue here in the UK because our, our food standards are a lot more a lot higher at the moment. Um, but then you speak about anti-nutrients. And I think if we were ancestrally consistent with our consumption of uh, fruits and vegetables, one, we'd eat what is local as opposed to what's shipped from all over the world. Two, we'd eat them seasonally when they're available. And three, we'd have that intuitive kind of wisdom to know how to prepare them, whether it be fermenting or soaking or doing whatever is necessary because we knew back then there was stuff in that potato or stuff in that leaf or in that seed that if we had it unprocessed, it would cause all sorts of problems. So we have that wisdom to say, okay, the food might be okay or even good, but only once we do this process. And we're kind of, you know, we're, we're navigating around that with these heavier industrial processes, which are not respecting the food the way we did ancestrally. And I think that then speaks to what you're saying, which is, well, if it's not being grown right and it's not being prepared in our kind of wisdom of knowing how to eat that food, then are we just causing more and more problems? The reason right. I, I push back on this, Judy, is because I, I think it would be wrong of us to say that plants don't have a place in our in 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 human diets. And I think in some parts of the world, they're, they're dominant. Maybe they're fallback food, but maybe and they've been a fallback food for so long that they're now completely acceptable. But as long as you res- respect the food, you engage with the food appropriately, and you don't have abundance of it. You spoke about spinach. Like I'll tell you a little quick story. I, I've been on this journey of trying to find you know optimal health. I wasn't in a terrible spot. I just wanted to be better. And mm. I was slamming the sweet potato every day. <laughs> I've got hundreds of meals on our, our website. Sweet potatoes, spinach, dark chocolate, um, you name it, all, all the things highest in oxalates, I was just having copious amounts of them every single day. And I thought nothing of it until I got educated on oxalates. And I decided, no, enough's enough. I, I'm, I probably just don't want this in my life. So I went full tilt, just got rid of everything in one go. Ugh. <laughs> Honestly, three months, the wife thought I was a, a just complete hypochondriac and just overthinking it. But I was all, right. over the, all over the place. I was breaking out with skin issues. Um, I felt completely lethargic. I was struggling and I felt ill, but not ill enough to say, I need to go to the doctors, just wrong. Um, for two, three months. And part of me is thinking, maybe I should be eating those foods and it's the absence of them, which is making me you know, break yeah. out and, and struggle. But I pers- persevered. I really don't have sweet potatoes anymore. I hardly touch... Um, spinach and the high oxalate foods and I feel a lot better for it. I don't avoid plants, but I got rid of a source of a problem that I never knew I had until I kind of stepped away from it. I mean, have you experiences of people, you know, struggling with oxalates because they they are considered, you know, some of the most, you know, superfoods, aren't they? The ones highest in oxalates generally speaking. Yes, it's interesting because like you said, oxalates are so you know, just to step back for some people that don't know what anti-nutrients are, you know, they are the toxins that are in the plants to protect themselves. Gluten is the most known anti-nutrient, but oxalates is one that I do think will become more and more known over time. But like you said, it's all the foods that are actually in the paleo movement that are really popular. So the leafy vegetables, the, um, the, let's see, so dark chocolate, almonds, cashews, 
uh, spinach, spinach, uh, what else? Turmeric is really high yeah. too. Turmeric's probably the highest. Sesame seeds, soybeans, teas, they dark, um, sorry, green tea, black tea, they're all really high in oxalates. Uh, sweet potato, like you said, and there, there's a lot. Um, there's just a lot that has it. And so what's interesting is, you know, we, we're like, what, what is oxalates? We've never heard of them. Um, you know, maybe it just affects some people. So for me, luckily, I didn't have oxalate dumping. So even though I had all that spinach for that long, Luckily, I didn't have issues where I stopped and then all of a sudden I had all this, you know, I felt worse after like, it sounds like you kind of went through that a little bit. And so that is something that happens too, is that your body is just storing all the oxalate crystals um, all over your body. And then when you're finally no longer eating them, your body's like, oh, so we can now detox them. And so it starts letting them go. And then people feel really sick. And so some of the people that are oxalate advocates, they say, you know, lower your dosage so slowly. So you don't kind of poison your body while it's dumping. So you just lessen the load um, over time. And so you may want to try that. But the interesting thing is if you were to go, um, if you had kidney stone removal surgery, and if you look at any of the uh, reputable hospitals that, you know, practice standard care and eat the USDA standard guidelines of food, and you look at the diet for a low, um, you look for a kidney stone diet, like what to eat after having kidney stone removal. Oftentimes it's a low oxalate diet. So they'll say, don't eat spinach, don't eat almonds, don't eat dark chocolate. And they never say it's an oxalate. Some of them do, I think, but in general, they don't educate the, you know, the patient that you have to remove oxalates, but they just say, don't eat these certain foods and then eat other foods that are higher in calcium and dairy that can, you know, bind to the oxalates and remove them. But some of the reasons why we get kidney stones is because of a high oxalate diet. And we just don't know about this, but I mean, the doctors do in that sense where for kidney stones, they have you remove the oxalates in your diet. And it's, again, it's just not well known. And some people just, you know, react to oxalates more than others. So if you have a history, a family history of kidney issues or kidney stones, you probably want to limit your oxalate consumption. And I just think if we if we respected having those oxalate rich foods when they were seasonally available, local, locally seasonally available, we would self-regulate naturally. We would have maybe a binge of those seasonally and then they would be gone for six, nine months. And that would have been enough to undulate between the different food sources that are sure. available, you know, in our location. But instead, we go on these fads and we go on these kind of healthy diets and we, we, we you know, prescribe these certain foods and we eat them every single day. And that was my problem is I just went full tilt on an oxalate rich diet without knowing. And there was a consequence of pulling out, but I'm glad I did because I do feel better for it. Um, right. Well, go on. one thing I want to say is, um, you know, if we were to just go by seasonal and local, you know, turmeric isn't everywhere normally, right? If exactly. we were to just go ages ago and probably spinach wasn't raised everywhere either. So I guess I would agree with you in terms of, so I definitely agree that we should eat local and seasonally, but even that in terms of modern kind of time, it still includes everything. Yeah. And so- it, it's I mean, what, what can be grown in your country? Not what do you have? Like, can, uh, I, can exactly. I grow bananas in the UK? No. Should I be having a ton of them? 
Probably not, right? Do you know what I mean? It's that kind of nuance of going, right. what can we actually grow in our country or in this town or in this village or in this, you know, county? And if you could respond to that, I, I know for me that intuitively makes more sense because you don't even have to think about it much. Of course it makes sense. Sure. You know, we, you know, we, we weren't traveling a thousand years ago. We weren't moving around. We weren't you know, importing food from all over the place and just having a, a, a feast of, of culture, cultures every single day. We were having to deal with what we had and it worked. And now we're just, you know, we're bringing too much diversity 24 7, 365, and then the processing. And then, as you say, all the, all, all the farming practices that are causing problems. And, and no wonder, right. you know, we're, we're the fattest, but most now malnourished we've ever been. We've got a surplus of energy, but we haven't got a surplus of nutrients because we're eating energy rich, nutrient poor foods. Talk to me a little about meat this meat diet you're on, um, and we're kind of kind of getting towards the close of this. Um, are you meat only in, in, the, in the way that the layperson would think of, which is, you know, cuts of beef and steak and that kind of thing? Or are you nose to tail? Are you including a richer, um, diverse collection of animal-based products? So eggs, dairy, uh, steak, pork, chicken, uh, you name it, fish, like going across it, and then all the offal, you know, the, the the liver and other organs. Talk to me about how diverse your your current diet is, and tell me why. Sure. So, I mean, as a nutritional therapist, and just um, I, I guess educating the community and writing the book, I've you know looked a lot into the details and nuances of nutrition um, and nu- nutrient density per food. So, I'm not a fan of just eating beef. I think that when you become meat-based for some reason, you kind of just want to eat beef and it becomes more of the main staple than any other meat. But I don't think it has a wide enough variety of nutrients. It It's very nutrient dense. And there are anecdotal stories where, you know, people eat just beef for decades and they're fine. But just from a, you know, I guess evidence-based perspective, for example, beef is not very rich in thiamine, which is B1. And you need it for so many different reasons. And you even need it to process and break down proteins. So you need B1 for a lot of things. You also need it for hormonal health, right? So your thyroid, I wonder if some people, um, some complaints that I get in the kind of meat-based community is that their thyroid seems to not be as um, healthy on a a zero-carb diet. But I wonder if it's because they're not having enough B1, which helps to convert. I believe it helps to convert T4 to T3. Right. So with that said, if you were to add pork, which is um, very rich in thiamine, or if you were to add some salmon, which has a decent amount, that would kind of round about your nutritional profile in a meat-based diet. So I think that you should eat a well-rounded version. And so- I would say include egg yolks, very nutrient dense. Um, there are nutri- nutrients in egg yolks that are a little less so um, in meats, for example. Uh, beef liver and you know adding the offal is very good. So very, very nutrient rich, uh, good sources of vitamin A. And it's just very, for every ounce of meat you'll eat, you won't get as much nutrition as if you have any like liver, for example, and kidney yeah. is another one. Do you eat? Do you um, eat- liver and kidney yourself? I eat chicken liver. I can't really do beef liver, but I also add cod liver. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah I, I, I have a lot of pate. I, I get oh, decent okay. pate and I just have loads of pate, not loads of pate, a, a good amount of pate every single day. That's my kind of liver fix because I'm just still not, I'll have it at a restaurant when they can do it properly, but I can't sure. cook. I can't cook liver at home. It just doesn't taste nice, you know. <laughs> yeah, I've tried beef liver every which way. I really want to love it, but I really just don't. Yeah. And I am going to honor my body. And so, <laughs> but chicken liver I can do. So we actually put it in a lemon marinade with a little bit of garlic. Let it kind of marinate overnight for at least 24 hours. It takes a lot of the mineral flavor away, and then I make a pate. So my kids devour it. So mm. they eat. So we make 16 ounces of the chicken liver. I lightly cook it. Then I add a whole big stick of grass-fed butter and I just blend it all up and I um, salt it and that's all I do. And and then they eat it. They eat it on top of bacon. They eat it on top of cheese crisps. Sometimes they have it um, on top of like a, you know, low carb cracker and it it does well. It tastes delicious. It's very creamy. Um, But I also eat a lot of cod liver. It's just easy. I mean, I pull out of the can. I know people are, Sometimes against, um, you know, eating canned food, but I, I have not seen um, heavy metal toxicity in the the clients that I work with that do the hair tissue mineral test. So until I see that, I'm not going to worry too much about it. Okay. But yeah, so I try to incorporate cod liver. I try to incorporate salmon roe. So I just had some last night. Uh, salmon roe is really rich in you know, the EPA, DHA, omega threes, it, it's very, very nutrient dense as well. So you can just have one spoonful and it covers your omega threes well. for the day. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I highly recommend my clients eating fish. Um, I think there's a lot of nutrition in fish that is not really covered in as, or in, I guess in the density as it is in fish. And so I have my clients eat, you know, whatever meat they prefer, but at least incorporate three to four times of fish um, a week. What, and fi- then what if fish in add- particular? Is it fattier the better in your eyes or, yes. or anything? So I say salmon with the bones intact, or I'm sorry. So uh, fatty fish like salmon, salmon roe is great. Um, and then I say add a little bit of um, sardines with the bones intact if you can, because mm-hmm. it's a great source of calcium. Um, and it's just, you know, with the fat. So it's just a good balance. And, um, what else let's see like herring. So it's all the smaller, fattier fish. It's very, very good for you. And I just see so much fatty acid deficiency with my clients and I see it improve markedly with just adding some fish and maybe taking a fish oil supplement for a little bit. So I'm a big fan of fish, um, egg yolks, grass fed butter. If you can get raw butter, it is so nutrient dense. Uh, you know, we think we come to think for some reason that the best way to get fiber, um, and the short chain fatty acids like butyrate and acetate and all these things that are gut nourishing is from short chain fatty acids from plants. But to get the richest form of butyrate is actually in butter, which is already in its bioavailable form. Your body doesn't have to convert it to anything to even be in the butyrate form. So if you eat a lot of raw butter, even if it's grass finished butter or grass fed butter, it will nourish your gut. And so I have my kids eat lots and lots of grass-fed butter Same every here. day. Yeah, we love it. Yeah. No, not not like straight though, right? You put it on your meats or whatever, or are they having butter straight? Um, they could do both. They could do both. Really? <laughs> yeah. So if, you know, sometimes, well, sometimes even uh, myself, I if I'm craving something or if I didn't have enough fat, um, then I'll just, uh, you know, slice off a little piece of butter and then I'll just eat it like it's, wow. you know, chocolate. My daughter says she can do that. I look at her and wince, but I love butter. I just not not straight. 
but may, maybe I'm just uh, maybe I've just got a little mental block there. But yeah, my, my, I look at my daughter and she says, "Yeah, I'll easily do it." I'm like, "You're, you're weird. Stop." <laughs> but maybe she isn't. Yeah, maybe I she's mean, just intuitive. Well, you might just be getting enough fat from your foods, and you might not need it. I do think that women need a little bit more fat than men, and they seem to just do better on a higher fat carnivore diet rather than just uh, you know just eating the fat around your meat. And I think it's because of our complex hormone system, yeah. right? So um, that I just have seen women do better on a, a much higher fat carnivore diet. And so, yeah, I think people in general, if you're going to do a meat-based diet or eat heavy meat, you should eat a variety. Like don't just stick to muscle meats of ground beef and beef patties and uh, steaks. I know they're the easier ones to get. They're tastier, but, you know, we should add some fish. We should add some egg yolks. We should add some liver. Um, you haven't and spoken pork. about cheese at all. Are you you're not a fan of cheese and milk? Um, I so no. So I am a I am a fan of uh, raw. So I'd say I'm a fan of the raw dairies. Yes. Um, my so I when I couldn't nurse my oldest son anymore, I was searching everywhere for the best type of milk, and I found that it was raw goat's milk. And one, it's because goat's milk is the closest to the makeup of human breast milk. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, just the raw variety um, allows you to have all the enzymes that can break down lactose. And it's just in its real natural form. And so it's actually gut nourishing. There's a lot of nutrients. There's studies. Um, there was a study in the, uh, Europe. I don't know exactly when, but they did it with uh, young s- schoolboys, I think. And what they found was that the kids that were consuming the raw milk versus just the regular milk, the raw, the kids that were drinking raw milk were actually taller in the end. And so it's interesting to know that. Um, so my boys, they consume raw milk every day. They drink raw goat's milk. I drive to the farm to get that. If you can get raw dairy, I am a big fan. Same we man. do eat dairy in our house. Um, I don't think the pasteurized versions, even if it's organic, um, is the same just because you know, the pasteurization kills a lot of the vitamins, it kills the fat soluble vitamins, and it kills a lot of the enzymes. And so for people that are, you know, autoimmune compromised, or they, or people are just sick, some people react to dairy. And I think it's because it's pasteurized. I believe that if you get the raw dairy, um, it's in its again, natural state. And, you know, it can be a very, very good nutrient dense form of food. Yeah, yeah. we we do the same when we can. We don't always get raw because it's it's just a little bit more effort, you know, to go 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 sure. to a farm around a corner and all that kind of stuff and organize the time. But we do go at least we take we take like the best quality Channel Island dairy that we can get. It's um it's unhomogenized. So you get, you know, it's full oh, okay. fat and you get you get the kind of butter, you know, the kind of cream top and that cream is lovely. It is pasteurized though, and I know that is a sacrifice we're making for convenience. Um, right. But it tastes great, and your body knows it's great. You know, you know. There's a reason why we like full fat milk. It's not because we're gluttons. It's because it's good for you, right? You 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 know it's got stuff in there that you feel good about. And as you've said, if you, if you you spend if you don't process the milk, the milk in its natural form is um, is more digestible, right? So when people talk about yes. lactose intolerance and so forth, well, there is a lactose in there, right? But uh, or, or the lactase in milk. Um, I know we lose it as we get older, but the food has the enzymes in it, but not if you pasteurize it and homogenize it. Yes. So dairy is a great source of nutrition. Um, It even has the butyrate that I was just talking about that's in butter. 
Um, but it's just when we highly process the dairy, that's when it can become less advantageous. Um, I think shredded cheese is an example of that. If you look at the back, they add sometimes coloring, even if it's natural, it's not ideal. Mm. And then sometimes they add like potato starch so that it doesn't stick together. And again, it might be different in the UK, but you know, it's just not as ideal. And I definitely notice it. If I use shredded cheese, I feel a little bit more bloated. It's probably a little bit of the carbohydrates. Um, but, and, and, and you know, come on, like, you know, it's, it's just shredding cheese. Like we, we can handle that extra little tiny process ourselves, right? <laughs> we don't right. need, we don't need the bag. Do you ever have, um, like high fat goats, uh, goat cheese? Like, um, we have, uh, halloumi, which is obviously oh, right. Cypria. Uh, I am Cypria. So there's, I think there's just like a, an intuitive desire for it, but we love it. I have halloumi probably pretty much every day. And obviously with those harder cheeses, they, um, they, they lose their uh, lactose anyway, right? So if you are lactose intolerant, there's really no lactose in harder cheeses as yes. far as I'm aware. That's right, yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so hard cheeses are definitely a much better option. Um, they're less processed and like you said, there's less la- um, lactose and uh, they're just, you know, in its more natural state. So I definitely get a lot more of the hard cheeses. Um, sometimes I get the sliced cheeses for the kids and it's fine. Um, I mean, we have shredded cheese often in our house, so I don't overly stress about it. But, you know, if we were to just talk about true nutrient density and the most optimal foods, I think getting the raw ones is better. I definitely I don't think I've ever bought milk, uh, just milk from the grocery store for my kids. Um, I have made it a point. So for the last five years, I've driven to the farm just to get the raw ghost milk. But with all that said, they still eat the cow's milk. I mean, cow's cheese. Sometimes they get um, the regular, just the conventional, non-organic, you know, sometimes they want the plain American cheese, and that is very, very processed. As long as it's not a a focal point of their diet, I I think we can tolerate, you know, the odd exception or sacrifice to our pure diet, as long as it's the fringe, at the fringes as opposed to the center. Last question then. Um, And I think it's prudent upon me and you to make sure we, you know, cover this. Is there, do you see long-term carnivore attempts go wrong? So you've got obviously people that you you coach uh, and guide. Does, does everyone see value in one, a transition to carnivore diet, whether it be the weight loss, whether it be just feeling better mentally, physically, energy-wise, all the things we've spoken about, nutrient uh, or, or nourishment, should I say? Um, is it 100%? Or do you find cases where maybe they just it doesn't work from the get-go or it starts working and then three, six, nine months, they're struggling again? Yes. So I definitely see people struggle. I do think that everyone can do a carnivore diet. I am a firm believer in that. I think that you have to personalize it though. So I do believe that if you are just eating meat-based um, animals, the muscle meats and you're not adding a lot of fat or you're cutting off all the fat or you're eating just lean proteins that you may not feel well over time. It really depends on how old you are when you come into the diet, how sick you are, right? So are you metabolically challenged? Are you, do you have any metabolic disease? You know, what are you coming in the diet with and what are you coming in the diet for? And then based on that, I think you should fine tune it. The problem that I see with carnivore is oftentimes it's very sensationalized, right? Mm -hmm. So if you eat a meat-based diet, you'll heal everything. It's this kind of magic bullet and you can heal everything and heal everything really quickly. You can have 
the perfect body without doing any workouts almost because, hey, meat has protein, which then can build muscle, which all of that is true. But the thing is, it doesn't talk a lot about the issues. So people say, hey, you could just eat hamburger meat. You could just eat steaks and you could eat it forever. Look at these, you know, prime examples that have done it for decades and they look wonderful. And so maybe for them it worked um, to that degree. But time and time again, for all the clients I work with, and most of my clients are keto or carnivore, and they can't just do steaks and eat abundance of like um, two, three, four, five pounds. Um, if they eat that long term, their blood sugar can go up too because protein, excess protein can be converted to glucose through a process called gluconeogenesis. And and then there's also all these like differing uh, ideologies out there. So with all that said, I think if you were to personalize it again, meaning that Maybe for some people, they need just higher fat. Maybe for some people, they need to eat two meals instead of one. Maybe they need to eat three meals. Maybe they need to eat more fat closer to bed versus the protein. If you can figure out what is working for you and then you know use levers to improve the diet, I think everyone can do it. Now, I think if you don't really have health issues, um, I don't you know, you can obviously add the plant foods and see what works best for you in terms of energy mood. I always have all my clients track certain things, which includes sleep. So one thing is if you have optimal health, you should not be waking up at all in the middle of the night. Another thing is your mood. How is your mood throughout the day? Is your mood, your energy consistent? And then, uh, and this obviously is in general, it doesn't mean that you will 24, seven, 365 days always be this good, but in general, you should be. Um, and your stools, like how are your stools consistent? Um, if you're always having loose stools, that's obviously an indication something's wrong. And then I'd say in general, just like your, if you feel bloat or any of that stuff, and I keep saying bloat, but I mean, just any gastrointestinal distress, right? So you have stomach pains, uh, gas or, um, whatever it may be in your stomach, but in general, um, yeah, I think everyone can do a meat-based diet uh, because it is, again, I know we didn't cover a ton of it, but it is the most nutrient-dense and it has the most bioavailable nutrients. So even if your gut is damaged, you have a higher chance of absorbing the butyrate from butter than you will from the fibrous foods that have to convert it into uh, butyrate. Uh, same thing with carrots with the beta-carotene versus if you just had liver that had the vitamin A. Same thing with iron from spinach. It's um, You could just eat heme iron from meat and the chances of you absorbing the iron is much higher. So from all of those perspectives, if you even have gut damage, if you have just ailments, meat is much more bioavailable and absorbable and it's very nutrient dense. So you don't even have to eat a lot to get a lot of the nutrition. Mm. But and it's efficient, general, right? Because it's bioavailable. Yes. It's, it's an efficient way of getting everything you need, right? The macros, the yeah. micros and and the calories. And I mean, I can speak to um, someone who's always been a, a foodie and always associated volume with what makes me happy. Move into something where meat is much more central than it's ever been before. And it's, um, you know, whether it's ox cheek, oxtail, pork, pork shoulder, you know, like a um, pork belly, uh, you know, steaks of all sorts, you know, doing a beef um, beef stew, like whatever it is, the, it is the centerpiece. It's the most dominant part of our diet. Yes. And then we, we we put the stuff around the fringe that we, we enjoy. But doing that 
I can absolutely say what what has changed is 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 what I want is flavor, texture, sensation, which comes from nutrient density. I don't I don't live for volume anymore, and I can right. I can go for like I've gone for on three day fast. I've gone on two day fast. I go on many one day fast just because I I'm busy. And um, I've never, ever been able to go a few hours without food, obviously, other than sleep. So I say fundamental shift in my relationship with food. And it's and it comes from knowing what my body thrives off of and what's most dense and favoring density over volume. And I just feel so much better for it. So much better. Right, right. You'll feel more satiated. Your energy will be consistent and you just feel better. I mean, that's. I always say to people, you know, I know it can sound crazy to be just meat based, but just try it for 30 days, 60 days. And you can always go back to the way you're eating now. And that level of freedom you can feel, which sounds ironic, right? So you're eating such an exclusive diet that removes almost everything, but you're saying you feel freedom, but you can, right? So I don't stress about what am I going to eat today? What, what's our dinner? It's just, you know, food is fuel. And I function such at such a high capacity now. I don't have the mood issues. And you can use meat as a way to heal. And so I always say to people, just try it for two months and see how you feel. And you can always go back. You're not going to damage your body enough that, you know, hey, you ate meat for just that period and you feel bad. You can always go back. But at least you may have a glimpse at how good and how clean and how well-fueled your body can feel if you just tried it for just two months. And maybe some of the lingering issues you've had in your body, your mental health, whatever it is, you can feel better. Mm. No, I think that's I think that's right. I think there's um, this, unlike uh, going on a detox or a cleanse or, you know, I don't know, a spinach diet or a soup diet. I don't know what they all got. All these like weird newfangled diets that you go on where you just eat this one food for a week and think, ugh, like I can't. And after day day two, like your body, you know, your mouth salivating, you can't concentrate, like your head's all over the place because you're in a caloric deficit. Like it's hard to do those kind of diets. I can say, and maybe this is my bias, maybe not everyone's like this, but I think most people are, if they're honest with themselves, is that, Animal-based foods are the most, the, the most like intuitively enjoyable. You know the combination of the fats and the proteins. Like that's why when you go to a, a good restaurant, there's a load of butter on stuff, and you think, right? Why is it? It's, it's it's this kind of weird paradox. This you know, and and it's unfortunate that the 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 foods that are the most quote unquote indulgent, natural indulgence, are the worst for you. In actual fact, that isn't the case. It's just we've been indoctrinated to think that when we go to a great restaurant and they put out, you know, a fatty steak and they've got loads of butter on all the foods that they, you know, whether it's the vegetables, whatever it is, butter everywhere, literally cooking butter constantly and thinking it's yummy, but, oh, this, I'm going to pay for this. In actual fact, right. I, I think we, if we could just listen to our body saying, I love that ox cheek or that oxtail where all the collagen is kind of melted into the meat and it's kind of just this sumptuous flavor. Instead of going, oh, it's got loads of fat in it. So, you know, this is not good for me. It's it's to do a 180 on that and go, actually, it tastes good and it is good. And that's why it tastes good. And now you go on a carnivore diet or a diet where meat is at the center and it doesn't feel like a struggle. Now you might miss stuff, 
but it won't be a diet that you feel really constrained with because the food at least that you do have is tasty. You just might miss a few different flavors and textures, but you're not eating cardboard. You know what I mean? You're having sumptuous flavorsome yeah. food. I mean, does, does, does that connect with the experience that people that go on a diet say, or, or do they find it just hell? Yeah, it's interesting. So there are people, I have seen people that say they miss, you know, certain foods when they go on a meat-based diet. So some people there, it's not too common, but sometimes I hear people in the community though, and it's not people I directly work with, but they say, oh, I'm really getting bored of meat. And I wonder with those people, since I don't work with them, if they're adding sweeteners to their food. So if you add anything else, you know, you may have the kind of hankering for something other than meat. And so that's where I wonder, are you adding sweeteners? Are you using other, you know, like sweet kinds of foods that's making you then stimulating that craving in your brain and in your gut? Um, But in general, if you are just fueling when you need and you're eating meat-based, then typically I just see that, you know, people have their one, two meals a day and then they feel really well. Um, you know, if you, I don't see people, I don't have a client that says I can't do this diet because the food is hard. It's typically that maybe their gut is not, is impaired where they might need a little bit of digestive enzymes for the fat digestion, Mm. or they're not sleeping through the night because they're eating a little bit too much protein and not enough fat. Yeah. So it's, but it's rarely that I can't do this way of eating because it's the food. So like you're saying, right, the food is very um, tasty. And, you know, the reason why, you know, my husband's a foodie and he loves, you know, rich foods. And if you think about all the foods that are very tasty, there's very, very good amounts of fat because fat makes food taste so delicious. And why is that? I mean, would our can our brains be that dumb mm-hmm. that it will re- recommend us to eat foods that are so bad for us, right? But, unfortunate, I know people but can, unfortunately, that does happen now because we've hijacked the system, right? We, we we yearn and have addictions for foods that do we pr- precisely that. And that's where it yes. can be difficult in a soundbite to say what you've just said and for yes. it to sit well because people say, well, I love ice cream. I love Snickers. Tell, tell me, you know, my brain can't yeah, be yeah, messing so I was up there, just, right? <laughs> Yeah. So I was going to talk about the bliss point where, uh, you know, in labs, they have the food industries. They're always working on finding the perfect balance of sugar, salt, and fat. And maybe for sodas, it's just this, you know, sugar and the salt. And they're trying to find a point where it's where your brain will want more, right? So it's, oh, I just want one more bite, one more bite. And that is the goal of these processed foods. So yes, you may be craving ice cream, especially if it's processed, uh, you may be craving, you know, some of the junky foods, but it's intentional, right? So that is not a, your body's yearning for it, but they have scientists creating in the labs, these foods that are highly, highly addictive, right? Because we didn't even get into the fact that sugar is highly addictive, but they make foods, these Franken foods that basically cause our bodies to want it. And that is not the same craving I mean with, um, with like real foods of butter. And I I think ice cream is even fine too, if it's in its natural state. So if you think about raw cream and then maybe just a little bit of honey or little touch of sweetener, that's fine. 
but it's the way that we're constantly eating ice cream, which we would never have that amount of abundance. And then all the other toxins they add to it, like the gum and all the other stuff um, they add that's not as ideal. Absolutely. It's really that the process, I, I know I get that question a lot. Well, if we were to let our kids just trust their bodies, they would just want to eat sugar all the time. But if you think about even that, our bodies are smart where they want us to just survive another day. And the quickest way to get survival is in the easiest, cheapest form of energy is sugar. Yeah. So I think it makes sense why kids love sugar. It's they'll, it'll help them grow to tomorrow, right? It doesn't support longevity, but it definitely supports you to be alive for tomorrow. Yes, yes. It's short-term needs versus long-term needs uh, with right. sugar and glucose. Perfectly said. All righty. Listen, this was mammoth, but great. <laughs> I, I think we... um. We didn't make, you know, we haven't made a repeat of the other conversations I've had with people that have kind of similar uh, views and food. Um, we covered a lot of your personal stuff and we, we jumped around the place a bit, but in a way which I think is hopefully going to be productive. Thank you so much for today, Judy. Um, you want to just kind of close on letting people know where they can find you, the book, that kind of thing? Yes. And thank you for having me again. But so my book is called Carnivore Cure. It's uh, C-U-R-E. Um, it is being sold as a paper book in or paperback on amazon.com. So it is not in other countries, unfortunately, just because it's really just me. Um, and so you can buy it from the US um, or you can get the ebook and that should be everywhere. So Amazon, um, Barnes Perfect. and Noble, Apple and all that. And then my website is nutritionwithjudy.com or you can find me um on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Nutrition with Judy. Brilliant. And I will um, highly recommend people check you out on Instagram. Uh, I'm not a big user of that platform, but um, your stuff really sings there. You know, all your, all your graphics uh, and videos thank are you. fantastic. Thank you so much. And thank you again for having me. This has been delightful. Yeah, it has been truly brilliant. Thank you so much, Judy. Okay, Take bye. Care. Thank you. Whoa, just before you go, I want to know two things from you, if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find that episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please, and write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, that's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, there's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.